Coming up next, a happy Valentine's Day to all you ladies. Hello, ladies, and hello, gentlemen, and welcome to The Bookening, a very special Valentine's Day mega-stuffed episode where we are returning to where it all began. We are going back, back to the start. We're going back to pride, and I dare say, to prejudice. And I've got one very proud friend and one very prejudiced friend who I am going to introduce but I'm just an ampersand, and I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host, and more than happy to be here. Humble, hu- humility and obedience, really kind of the opposite of pride and prejudice, kind of the opposite of the character of the first guy I'm going to introduce, the scholar who's a baller of reading a arrogant, arrogant gentleman, his nose in the air, his glowering through his monocle as he sips his sherry. It's Brandon Chastine. Hey. How's it going there? It's going pal? pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. If only I was doing something else. I really don't think it's worth my time to be talking to you, but hey, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know the feeling. Uh, Brandon, I need you to introduce the much prejudiced other member, final member. The final member. I think you uh, kind of already did it, right? The much prejudiced, the very prejudiced final member. It's uh, the pastor who is a master of lots of things, actually. But in this case, of reading. Say what? It's a go away. No. It's the benefit Ah. of uh, the format we're using right now. He can't make me. But Nathan could. I can. (laughs) Nathan could. He's the ampersand. (laughs) I am the ampersand. The ampersand is going to stay between us. I don't like you. It's just be. I'm just happy we have more than six feet. Don't of like space being around us. you. Don't like the sound of your voice. Oh, you know, the feelings kind of mutual. Wow. Too bad I, I rarely even take notice of you. <laughs> no, 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 guys, guys, do not have a duel. I do not want any duels to happen before this this podcast is over. I heard down in Evansville they don't even know what guns are. <laughs> All right, we're doing this. <laughs> Let's go, guys, guys. guys. <laughs> As we cannot have a duel. <laughs> Maybe if one of you dies of natural causes, the other one of you can dig that one up and beat The closest you guys get to bone. knowing what guns is, is that if you spell it backwards, you get snug. And that's how you guys usually spend your day snug in a bed, safe and warm around your little cozy fires. Did you write that out? Have you been <laughs> dreaming of, like, did you have that one in your pocket? No, actually, I just... Brandon's been working on that for the last month, and that's the best that he has. Somebody somebody sent me something yesterday on palindromes, so I've been thinking of palindromes a lot <laughs> <laughs> since yesterday. It was pretty funny. You ever hey, seen... Why is it the word palindrome a palindrome? Shouldn't the word palindrome be a palindrome? I hate that guy. Yeah. Well, these were pretty funny because these were filled palindromes by John Hodgman. So, if you like John Hodgman, they were funny. Sure. He's all right. Guys, we have to get to it. Back in the day, we got to it Did right I finish away. him? Who? Introducing him, I mean. Jake. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think so. Finish, finish him. him. Finish him. <laughs> He's the pastor who's a master of Fatality. reading. It's Jacob Kyle Menzel. That's me. Yeah. The J.K. Menzel yeah. himself. 
the JK Menzel himself. Yeah. Menzel, the only Menzel, JK Menzel. we like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the other one's a turf. Yeah. So let's talk about Pride and Prejudice, guys. We're going back to the start. Six years ago, did we decide, or five years ago? It's a long Six. time ago. Yeah. Six years ago. That might not seem like much, but that's like, like how much of your life is six years? If you live the average three score and 10 and, and five or something like that, then six is a, a pretty good chunk. You guys, you know what I mean? Yeah. So six years ago, we read Pride and Prejudice and we discussed it. And you can go back and listen to those episodes. I actually have gone back and listened to those episodes and I will be bringing up some quotes from those episodes so that we can in fact do battle with ourselves or just be like we were great and we agree with ourselves either way we'll be processing in a metatextual sort of way some of the things that we thought and felt about the booking or but not about the booking uh, maybe we'll be processing that too I suppose we always process that but we'll be uh, processing things that we felt about pride and prejudice the novel by Jane Austen, but what's that sound? It's the six shooters going off. Hi. us into yeah. Hey, he's aiming at me, but you know, Texans and they're. I, I so. really, I really. Oh, don't want if this. you were here, I'd be hitting you because we'd be pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have worked pretty hard to miss. Listen, guys, uh, the reason you're Brandon's there firing, and I don't I even have to work hard to hit you, but I mean, some of that has to do with your size. So, yikes. Yeah. Guys, the pictures are, in fact, ushering us into. Shoot a gun control. in the air and you've got about a 90% chance of it landing on Brandon. I can't. I can't stop these guys from sniping at each other. Hey, guess what, guys? It. You want to you <laughs> hear something fun that'll make you both squeam? Squirm, squeam. Squeam? Yes. Squeam. Yeah, no. I, you I know what? I, I ain't so good with the words, but I am an ace shot with the gun. <laughs> well, that made what? me squeam. <laughs> that was, uh, I, I'm embarrassed by that. I think Squeam 5 is playing in the theaters right now. Uh, yeah, I just move on. Who cares? No, I'm not telling you guys now. I want to know. Squeam. Oh, you can take a guess. What I did last night, I went caving because no. we're doing a scouting expedition for right, a I, birthday thing for Jack. And I was caving. able to be taken in some of the tighter spots that they usually won't take. They won't take people that they don't think can go. So there you go. One of them included having to kind of flop around like a salmon as you try to squirm up this very tight canyon. Wow. That you have. Even fun. apart from the claustrophobia, just that description makes me kind of squeam. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I like, I, I. You enjoy imagining Brandon flopping like a salmon? Yeah. Although I think the scariest part of that would be like the, the, the shaking of the entire cave. Yeah. The, that did, the fear that, that, that it was going to scare in on, on you. Yes. The right. rumble, the probably from miles away, people, people were concerned. So. Yeah. How high did it register on the Richter scale when you were doing that, Brandon? About an eight. Wow. Did you guys feel it down there? Oh, yeah. I think that's, no, we, I, that must be what we were feeling. Yeah. I read about that. Didn't an entire town cave in? Must have, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, guys, speaking of cave-ins, this podcast is going to cave in. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't if get I going, don't. get us going, Nathan. Yeah, well, I've been trying. Brandon, oh, I was shooting off those six shooters, skin. right? Yeah, six shooters, pigskin, booketing, it's a thing. Contextual Texan, guys. That's right. We were tossing around the old pigskin back in those days. Yeah. Yeah, Who are you guys rooting for in the old Super Bowl? 
Who the pigs cares? Uh, the, the the Rams and the Bengals. Who, Hollywood Rams versus the locals. I guess, I guess the as Bengals, local as we but, get. Yeah, I guess at this point when this is dropping, it's a it's a known fact that the Bengals won. Indeed. Is the Super Bowl this week? Yeah, it's yeah. A Sunday. Oh, I totally didn't clock that. Wow. I guess nobody really cares if it didn't. Nobody's get back invited to you to a Super Bowl party, Nathan. I mean, we're having a party, but we only invited people we like, so. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I didn't get invited. Yeah. Plus, he didn't want all the food to be eaten. <laughs> the love is gone. Oh, speaking of lovely, I think that my wife is coming into the house. Ooh, what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> Brennan's just muted himself. Seeing how loud she's going to be, if I'm going to have to move to another room or not, I think she'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Kaboom, kaboom. It's Brandon versus Anna here. <laughs> Man, you guys are hilarious. You're the one that said it. You're really funny too, though, sweetie. <laughs> Does your, do you usually refer to your wife as you guys? Like she thinks... You guys. Hey, it's Fat Outplane. Guys, we have hey, to hey. do... No! This one's the not- turning over a new leaf. Get out of here, Fat Outplane. Yeah, get out of here, fast. I'm going to shoot him down. Wait, I can't hit him. Jake, I need your help. Got it. He got him. Wow, there he goes. It's a new day, and Fat Alplane is no more, literally. He's a flaming cloud of smoke in the horizon now. <laughs> <laughs> what a sad way for him to go. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure Britney Spears was on board, too, so. Oh, darn. <laughs> they were both coming to pay a visit. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, contextual Texan. We got to well, get this Well, if anything, the, the booking has proven that. Any character can be brought back, no matter how dead they are. <laughs> no, but if one of you dies from a duel, I guarantee that person is not coming back. So let's not fight any duels today. Now, listen. Pretty sure I destroyed all the time machines. What? Listen, we have yeah. to get into the meat of the show. We have to get the contextual Texan to give us some much needed context on the work that is Pride and Prejudice. Brandon, you are that Texas. You you are that Texas. That's how funny. I am the Texas. Biggest Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's bigger in Texas. Brandon, you're the Texas, and you're from Texas. I am the Texas. And you, and you, and you provide context. So provide some context for Jane Austen's. This is your seventh Jane Austen context. Yeah. That you're doing. So us. we should do a little bit of a retrospective on all and the stuff we've said about prejudice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, on all the stuff we've ever said about Jane Austen. Let's do a little bit of retrospective, guys. Actually, let's turn this into a... Let's see how well you guys were listening. <laughs> hey, that's fun. You guys want to sure. do that? Yeah. yeah. This has been seven years. Is it seven? Is this our seventh? This is our seventh our Jane seventh Austen. Seventh one, yeah. Seventh Jane Austen. So, by at this point, so I'm going to put on my teacher's cap. Mm-hmm. And if anybody's imagining, yes, it's a top hat with a daisy on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my teacher's hat. And I'm going to now ask you guys some questions. In what year, without Googling it, young men, in what year was Jane Austen born? 18, 18th century. 18th century, okay. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> save, save, save yourself there. <laughs> uh, 1776. So close. It's the year that one of her books was published, maybe. If she was one year old. If she was one year old. <laughs> because she was born because in... she se- was born in 1775. <laughs> she was born That's in 1775. That was the whole sentence. You didn't let me get it out. Little known fact that she was a prodigy and published her first book when she was one year old. She did have a book of juvenilia. Yeah. Which Nathan refuses to read. Yes, I do. Is that correct? Would not read people to, would not want people to read my juvenilia. Uh, I'm not a big believer in reading people's 
crap. Her father, who would die at 18 of, in 1805 when she was 30 years old, was a what? What was some of the things? Was- Pastor. Yes, he was a rector. So he would have been one of these guys who, similar to, what's his face in this one? Mr. Collins, right? Yep. Who would have been- Hopefully not. Not, not like Mr. Similar. Collins. Not, in I occupation, if not in character. As far as we know, Mr. Collins was not based at all on her father. But her father had a similar position where he would have gone to these various large estates and been the rector, local parish priest there. And so it meant that she mainly lived her life in these sorts of environments that you will see, surprise, surprise, is the main background to most of these novels. One place they lived was in Steventon. And... What are the things that we can say about Steventon? You can actually see a picture of it if you want to look it up, the Steventon Parsonage. And it looks about like what you would probably imagine the Bennett's house to look like. A nice little two-story house with some dormer windows up at the top, surrounded by some trees and a little lovely garden setting. There's a little like circular park bench looking thing around one of the trees where they could go out and sit and read under the shade under the shade of the trees. You know, one of these nice, lovely, stereotypical Jane Austen settings. And so this was the environment she would have been born and raised in, so she would have had similar characters to the ones that are in her books coming into their house frequently as guests, and she would have been part of the balls and the society. Even though her family wasn't in the highest society, they would have still had access to these sorts of things because her father, being a rector, would have had access to those sorts of things. But I'm supposed to be asking you guys questions, not just immediately defaulting into being the contextual Texan. Isn't that right? So what else can I ask you? (laughs) What was her education like, guys? She learned to read and write. Yes. And do various various performy, women-y things, like play the Yeah, so what would some of those things have been, Nathan? Crochet, piano. Probably. Yes, piano. Drawing. Drawing. Art. Uh, yep, you pretty much got them all. And probably not as accomplished as Mrs. Star- or as Miss Darcy. Probably not. Elizabeth is a very accomplished young lady. Do you know when she began to write? Let's see. She was born in seventy six. She died she when she learned. was forty two. She was born in seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah, seventy six is another important year, but not for Jane Austen purposes. Something happened in seventy six. Oh, yeah, the independence people, America. <laughs> yeah. Those guys. Those, those Which is moons. more important, American independence or Jane Austen's birth? Jane Austen's birth. That's an easy one. And Jane Austen's still going strong. I don't know about American independence. Am I right, guys? No. That's what right. I don't know. She began to write when she was 12 or something like that as a kid. That's exactly right, Nathan. She wrote some plays and a lot of the stuff that happens in, is it Mansfield Park? The one where they have the, the per- plays throughout performance. the, yeah. the yeah, plays yeah, yeah. within the play sort of thing. The house that is mildly being criticized and mildly not being... Throughout that book, it would have been very similar to her house, actually, growing up. They had a lot of performance. It was a lively house. They read books. Their father encouraged them to read books. Their father encouraged them to be creative. Their mom did as well. And so, it was a fairly happy home. She had... How many siblings? You guys can answer that. Nine. I'm guessing nine. Five? Let's see. That got cold. How would we figure... might be right to go lower, but... They married a day after my birthday, but it's not really saying here how many siblings she had. Well, we can look she had that at up least later. One sister and at least two brothers. That yeah, I mean, she had the older brother the because they become important. Really, her life story is fairly simple. So you just want to run through that pretty fast here. 
I mean, um, all her brothers either went to the Navy or the ministry, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so, uh, later on in life, her brothers would support them, and they would go and live in the house that they would finally be in. Was that the South? Chawton would be the house. So, in 1809, her brother Edward would offer his mother and his sister the cottage in Chawton Village, and so he would take care of them. For a few years there, they were on their own because her father died in 1805, fairly suddenly. And, but other than that, her life is fairly straightforward. They lived for a while at the first house in Steventon, and then they would go to Southampton and Bath. And so she would be, again, in Bath, she would be around, and that makes an appearance in Pride and Prejudice. The soldiers and the Navy men who would come in and charm all the ladies, and it would be the they would be present at all the balls. And so she got to be a part of all this life that she writes vividly about in this book because they lived among the society. So they lived for a time. So like I was saying, her life was pretty straightforward, pretty simple, not a lot of action. It was more in the people that she would have met because of her father's movement around England. But even then, that wasn't very significant. They moved to a few places, but not too many. But she did spend time at Bath. She did spend time in the countryside villas, these places that make uh, frequent appearances in her novels. And one of the things that we've stressed over and over again is how amazing it is that she was able to take these kind of small worlds and craft the uh, books that she did. And one of the ways that she did that is that even though she didn't have a life traveling around the world, going to Italy and going to all these other places that girls who were more privileged than she would have been would have been able to do, she had keen insight and discernment about human character and was able to watch the people around her, was able to watch the people that her father had over to dinner and in his, under his care. And uh, with that, she had all the material she needed. You know, there's this wealth of material that you get out of just having this power of, of observation and understanding human nature. And so that's really where her imaginative abilities came from. She didn't, in other words, uh, there's this misconception I think people have, like even authors, especially later on with American authors, they had this idea that to be a great writer, you had to go to Paris. You had to leave America. You had to go and travel the world. And yet that's just obviously not always the case. Maybe for some it's necessary, but for Jane Austen, it definitely wasn't, right? And so she lived a fairly quiet life. And that's to the frustration of many many critics who try to take that fairly quiet life and craft something out of it that it wasn't. And so maybe we should try, we should talk about the varieties of way people try to make sense of her life that is just unjustified. It's similar to what people try to do with Shakespeare. Does that sound good? Sounds yep. fantastic. And so the most prominent way is obviously the feminist take on her, that she was oppressed by her society and that she wanted more than anything to get away from it, but couldn't. And so you see those frustrations in her novel subtly, if you just read it correctly, or even unsubtly, because maybe it was repressed and that she wouldn't have known that. What are some of the reasons that we've talked about in the past that that's just not? Are we going to talk about that some as we go through in Pride and Prejudice? We didn't. I mean, maybe we will, but it's it's worth addressing right now. I mean, it's one of those perfect frames that you can put on things, because anywhere that she seems conservative, patriarchal. Anywhere that she doesn't fit the mold, they can just say, well, she had to be like that because of the time. She times. had to tip looked- her hand to the patriarchy. And then she they had can to look- make it plausible, acceptable. Right. Yeah. She, she couldn't totally break out of the system she was stuck in. 
But then they look for any little sign of discontent, any criticism, any little, any character, put in any character's mouth, good or bad. So a lot of the famous feminist quotes come from the character of, oh, what's her name? Mary, I think it is, the, the, the bad girl in Mansfield Park. And some of the bad girls in Persuasion, the one that dashes her head on the rock, is always talking about women's emancipation and stuff like that. So they pull those quotes out of context. I mean, it's so ridiculous that I don't even know how to address it because it's like, okay, you put on those glasses, you can see everything that way. But if you just look at the text, it, it's not there. It's just not there. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, and... This isn't to say that she had some cold and boring life, right? Yeah. It's just that she was able to be content with the life that she had. Um, there's evidence that she had, what was his name, Tom Lafoy or something like that? Tom so. Lafroy. This one person who was possibly a suitor. We don't know a lot because I think her sister Cassandra burnt most of the letters that would have told us what went on between the two of them. Yep. Which itself shows you that probably there was something that happened, right? Yep. And so, she did have these things in life. She just never got married and she never moved away. And so, one of the, you know, A Room of Her Own or whatever by Virginia Woolf really takes this idea of Jane Austen and tries to make a lot out of it. Like, how, how could possibly... And so, the question they get tripped up around is how could a woman who was so limited in her freedoms be the kind of woman who would become a Jane Austen, right? And it's just a psychological, they can't get a, they can't wrap their heads around it because there's evidence that yes, that she did indeed have this love, I mean, a love affair, but I don't want people to take the wrong connotations from that, this thing right. that happened in her life. And that she, she would give advice to some of her nieces and nephews later on, I think that one of her nieces wrote to her and she told her that if you don't like this man who's trying to woo you, don't marry him. There's nothing worse than marriage without affection, right? Mm. And so she felt free to give advice like that. And yet she herself never found that love, which would make her want to marry. There's also great evidence from one of her Nephews later on would write his biography on her. And I think one of the years we talked through that biography. Yes, we did. Right. And one of the things that he talked about was how she had her writing desk and how she could easily transition back and forth between playing with her nieces and nephews and then going and writing. And there was just this ease of her writing life, but not having her writing life just be everything. And I think that that's the other thing that trips up people today about her is that when we think of an author, we think that the author has this tragic romantic commitment to writing that dominates their life. And it has to be, you guys ever seen Moulin Rouge yep. or the guy, you know, with his hat back on his head and the cigarette in his mouth. And he's like killing himself, just drinking whiskey and writing because that's all you can do, man. Once you get, well, if you're a writer, yeah, if, you, yeah. if you're a writer, then you're a writer, right? And the sacrifices we make to produce great art for the world yeah and so and there's this philosophy there's this thinking that that's the only way that you can become a great writer and that that's what jane austen must have had in her life and it's just this great mystery as to how in the world could we get these novels out of this kind of life yeah it's the same mystery that people find in like how could shakespeare write in the voice of a king and a peasant 
so weird or the or yeah. how why do the apostle paul's letters sound this way over here and this way over here he must not be the same guy because no person is capable of being a person and writing different letters in different styles or adopting different voices for characters or not being bound by the shackles of the patriarchy and just finding some time to write that's impossible. There must be some crazy narrative of the type that we like to plug yep. in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet, go with Occam's razor here. The simplest solution is probably the solution. So the simplest solution is probably to believe the people who grew up with her. And of course, they may have seen her through rosy colored glasses. And so they didn't see all her moments of sadness. And she was a human. Right. So I'm sure sometimes she felt very lonely. I'm sure sometimes she felt sad that she couldn't have the romances that she wrote about. Sure. That's fair enough to think that, right? I would even go it so also far does... as to say some of the criticisms she makes of the patriarchy or of women's place are not all unfounded, you know, like she she probably They came had, from somewhere. She yeah, she had her thoughts about how women should be treated and how society failed to come up to that, but that doesn't make her a feminist by any modern definition of the word or by any no. definition of the word ever. Yeah. And yet, that's what they want to do. They, they just can't. And when I say they're just modern critics, they just can't wrap their head around it. They can't imagine that she could be a complicated woman who also found some form of happiness and contentment with surroundings that weren't ideal, that weren't modern surroundings. And even then, I mean, you take a look at the way that we make sense of the world through with our modern surroundings. It's not like we do much better. All the freedoms that we claim that we have, and there's still every major artwork that comes out from that camp is depressed and lonely. Mm-hmm. They, haven't, they haven't managed to free themselves from what they don't want to see, which is their own depravity. That's what's always lurking in the background. And Jane Austen had a good sense of that. In this, in this case, she's uh, Flannery O'Connor is very similar in, not style, but at least in the way she lived her life, came back to Georgia, lived a quiet life, and wrote some of the greatest American short stories. And so here we have Jane Austen, lived a quiet life, loved her nieces and nephews, stayed with her mom, died young, and wrote some of the greatest novels. And the fact that her life doesn't live up to what we think it should have doesn't change the fact that she did this. And so... We can try all we want to make it make sense, but again, the simplest solution is always the easiest. I'm, I'm sure I've said this before on these podcasts, but if you read Virginia Woolf's essay on Jane Austen, it's a masterclass in crummy feminist writing that doesn't have any basis in any kind of objective reality. Because And it's so catty because she talks about propaganda. how- It's just propaganda. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. I mean, it's because what she does is she says, first of all, she's really catty and shrewish and other terrible animals towards Jane Austen's brothers who live to be 90. And she's like, poor Jane. And she sort of implies that somehow the patriarchy made her die when she was 42. And then she spends the whole essay not criticizing the novels that Jane Austen wrote, not not actually digging into the text, but conjecturing what Jane Austen may have written had she lived. And yeah. she just she just makes up stuff. It's ridiculous. And it's a widely praised essay that, yeah, that people I mean, love. I, my hot take on Virginia Woolf is that she she got more praise than she deserved because 
of her life. She is she lived a certain way that fascinated people at the time, and therefore people paid more attention to her than her writing actually merits. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I yeah. And I and, and people want to fight me on that, whatever. But I've read most of Virginia Woolf's works. I studied modernism, and just comparing her to the other stuff that I've read from that era is just it's it's fine. But it's definitely I don't think deserves what it's received. Well, it's just many of our listeners may be intimidated by maybe they aren't, but if you are, if you're the kind of person who's intimidated by by modern academia. And you feel like, okay, I know Jane Austen wasn't a feminist, but there's all these scholars out there saying she was, and how would I even stand against that? And if I had to read one of these papers, I don't know how I would parse it. It's pretty easy to parse, actually, because often it's just made up out of thin air. Often, it's just conjecture. It's just, I find the jumping off point is a feeling that I had, or a dream that I had, or, or... in in this in Virginia Woolf's case, here's some novels I'm imagining that Jane Austen would have written had she lived. Here's the direction I think she was going, and of course, the direction she thinks she was going is the direction that Virginia Woolf would want her to go. Virginia Woolf wasn't the first one, so this is actually. Let me read you a quote. This comes from the back of the book that we guys have. This is one of the appendices. Did you guys read these, RG? No. Good. No, I don't think so. So here, see if you guys can guess who wrote this. Why do you like Miss Austen so very much? I am puzzled on that point. I had not seen Pride and Prejudice till I read that sentence of yours, and then I got the book. And what did I find? An accurate, daguerreotyped portrait of a commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of a bright, vivid physiognomy, no open country, no fresh air, no blue hill, no bonny beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses. The Twain? No. The Twain did Ameri- hate. Is it an American? It's got to be an American. It's not an American, actually. Oh, okay. Someone who was kind of a contemporary, but you were always, were always surprised to remember that they're contemporaries. Lady or dude? A lady. Mary Shelley? No, but that's getting closer from that camp. So, a romantic? Mm-hmm. We've read her. Oh, uh... A Bronte? Yeah, Charlotte Bronte. Oh, of course. Yeah, and so there you get the difference. I mean, psychology. and you can see that she's kind of on Virginia Woolf's side here, that there's no freedom, that, that, that these books lack a freedom, that their constraints limit them. And that, yeah, if only you could have the Jane romantic. Is exactly what I, the kind of freedom that I. Yeah, which there's just all sorts of issues with that argument, right? But. This is uh, this is not this is a, not a new criticism. In other words, that's what you'll often find with literary criticism: is there's really nothing new. Right. It all goes back to things that people have always thought, and so you have this. Well, th- there's a perfect uh, though example of why Virginia Woolf simply doesn't hold up at all because Austin is being criticized by a female contemporary, right? Which means that female contemporaries. Absolutely had the freedom to... The agency, the... Yeah. The agency, the ability to think and to write and to express their disappointment in Austin's perspective. Really, yeah. honestly, Virginia Woolf, if there's one place that you cannot complain about the treatment of women, it's letters. Women have, and it's particularly fiction, 
women have dominated fiction. They've written some of the best fiction of the 18th century, of the 19th century, and of the 20th century. Basically, since the novel became a form, women have been neck and neck with men. And Jane Austen, George Eliot, Flannery O'Connor, the, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. You just, the whole idea that women have been denied expression through letters. Uh, you could make an argument about other fields and other industries, but letters is ridiculous. It, uh, I just don't think that it, in the modern era at least, bears out at all. Yeah, and go ahead. Well, even in even in ancient times, how much of uh, we have songs and poetry and scripture that is composed by women. Right. I mean, letters really is the place that you really just can't things start to fall apart which which makes sense because letters is a domestic art uh, in in its way and men often don't have time to read and write actually so if if anything men <laughs> I, I would go so far as to say ah man men have had to provide and be out in the fields and stuff we don't we don't even have time to read fiction in many eras and in many places and in many spheres yeah we're always out yeah when do we have time for it Guess guess who didn't write any great novels? Jane Austen's brother, who was serving in the Navy. It's true. How many unwritten bro- novels have not come to the world because a man has had to be out working? Or dying as a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Or just put in a room of his own. Of yeah. Let's have an era where the women all have to go out and work so we men can finally have time to do what we need to have time to do. Devote ourselves to letters. Yeah. It's a really great point. or it's a horrible point (laughs) (laughs) so men should have rooms of their own uh where where, where were we before we got off on that wonderful bunny trail you're taking us through jane austen's life or criticisms of jane austen or (laughs) criticisms of jane austen so we were uh, charlotte bronte and her criticisms and so right in other words this and letters and we were talking about letters and how that was a domestic art form but speaking of letters Here's one that most people think is tongue-in-cheek from Jane Austen on her own book, Pride and Prejudice, that she wrote in 1813 to her sister Cassandra. I had some fits of disgust. The work is rather too light and bright and sparkling. It wants shade. It wants to be stretched out here and there with a long chapter of sense, if it could be had. So she kind of, what's funny here is she's kind of looking and seeing the criticisms and understands what what people's criticisms would be. If not... Of solemn, specious nonsense about something unconnected with the story, an essay on writing, a critique on Walter Scott, or the history of Bonaparte, or anything that would form a contrast and bring the reader with increased delight to the playfulness, playfulness and epigrammatism of the general style. I doubt you're quite agreeing with me here. I know your starched notions, (laughs) which is a burn. It's pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, always. There's none of these great, it's kind of a burn on Tolstoy too. There are none of these right. uh, pauses where you just write, Why decide you to write an essay. Why didn't you put in a bunch of boring yeah. stuff about it, Napoleon to, yeah. to, to make the fun parts sparkle a little bit more? Yeah. Where's the boring so, essays of, of where Levin is philosophizing? Yeah. And so I think that she has everybody, as, as usual, she has people's number and she knows what her books did and she knows what their value is. And I don't think she was bothered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of just like things that are fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. And hey, it just so turns out that the things that I write that are fun also are incredibly insightful and useful. 
Well, can I just jump in what there and say... What if it was say, just good? How about that? What, yeah, what, if, what if I just cut out the bad parts and kept the good parts? Uh, <laughs> I was... I was, I basically read this novel in a day because that's how it fell, fell out that my time worked when I finally got a chance to read it in preparation for this podcast. And man, it flies. And I it was does. just like, what is so compelling about this? And then the, the thought that I had actually was, she just didn't include any of the boring parts that people always... Like, it's actually all story. I mean, it's actually mm-hmm. like a TV writer couldn't do be, do better. Like, it's all either moving the flat plot forward or setting up a hilarious joke or paying off a hilarious joke or giving insight into character that's necessary for the plot to move forward. Like, it never, it never stops. And the contrast yeah. that I had in my mind was Dickens, whose Tale of Two Cities I like, spoiler alert, and we'll get to that. But man, for a guy who's so much so famous for being a pot boiler... He's he's always committing all the crimes that Jane Austen was just making fun of in right. that letter. And for a woman who's famous for writing stodgy kind of downtown Abbey type stuff in people's minds, man, Jane Austen is very fast and plot oriented and aggressive in her storytelling. Anyway, proceed. Yeah. Kind of eager to just jump right in now, but yeah, I did. Yeah. There is one last thing. So one thing that I've, tried to bring with context in the past is this sense of the social background, because I do think it's useful for this book. And uh, this particular volume, and this is just, I guess this is also a way for me to get in, and now it's not going to be so subtle anymore. I'm making the subtext text. But if people give us enough money for us to send you books, you get really valuable books. Mm -hmm. They don't cut corners on what they send. And they got me a copy to show their gratitude. Mm-hmm. Of the book that you guys got. And in the back here, it had some really, a really great general note on social class. And so here's Clara Reeves in her plans of education in 1792. She described the following hierarchy. And this was actually a hierarchy she described as being useful for uh, deciding how children should get educated. But just in general, I think this is pretty interesting because I think it lays out who we see throughout this book. So I'm going to read this just real fast. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The nobility of this land are rich and powerful, but there is a distinction between the different degrees and titles, and also between the old and new nobility, which the old families will understand. And so there we see, you know, the old and new nobility. And we see that here, I think, with, for example, you feel a difference between Darcy and Bingley. They're both the upper class, but Bingley's not Darcy, Mm because Darcy comes from that sort of rich, ancient nobility. The next order are the old families of wealth and consequence, some of whom have refused titles that they thought it beneath them to accept, whose families are older and their fortunes superior to many of the nobility. And you see those throughout some of her novels, that just the wealth, the people who are powerful by virtue of wealth and their families have had this sort of wealth. The Bingleys may technically fall into that category. Is that right? I don't know. I don't remember whether- I know that we for sure see it with that one girl in, is it Mansfield Park, the rich girl? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often a distinction between yeah. groups of people. In the third class, I would place those who have acquired great wealth by any profession or calling, and whose wealth, however gained, stands in lieu of birth, merit, and accomplishments to the world and also to themselves. I mean only those overgrown and enormous fortunes, which we have seen in our days, so those who just inherit and become wealthy. Some of the scoundrels in some of the other novels would fall into that category. Fourthly, I would reckon the inferior gentry, who can only count hundreds, or the above class number thousands a year. In this class, every real blessing and comfort of life is to be found, and those who know how to enjoy them with virtue and moderation are the wisest and happiest of mankind, 
But there is a canker worm which too frequently destroys their fortunes and their happiness, a foolish ambition to imitate their superiors in manners and in vanity and experience. That would be the Bennets, right? They would fall mm-hmm. into this. But fifthly, the men of genteel professions, law, physic, and divinity. Well, I guess maybe this one. To these may be added those employed in the public offices under government and the officers of the army and navy. In this class, I would include all merchants of eminence. The character of a British merchant is one of the most respectable of any in the world. This fifth category and the fourth are the ones that we mainly see in Jane Austen novels, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that they interact with those upper three classes, the ones that either have their arrogant position through wealth or inheritance of either an old or a new title. Right. And so anyways, I just thought this was, so there are many of this honorable profession who can afford to spend with any of the classes above mentioned. Just think of how many generals or admirals of the Navy are in, in the top class in her books, right? They get to, they have the money because they have that position. Anyways, I thought this kind of gave a good feel for the complexity and yet the it's not so complex after all that there are these set classes and that they do interact with one another, but even someone in education knew that people had a place, right? right? And that there wasn't this easy sliding back and forth between the two. Old nobility were the old nobility. And if you were in the fifth category, even if you could be wealthy and have the good fortune of being around them, you really weren't supposed to skip from one category to the other. You couldn't just make yourself old nobility by virtue of money, right? You would always have this sort of fixed category that you would have socially because of your birth. And that is the novels, like essays generally have some sort of driving thesis behind it. And the thesis here is that you have Darcy, who's old nobility, you have Elizabeth, who isn't, whose father is in that fifth category of divinity, priest or rector, and that really aren't supposed to be skipping back and forth between those two categories. And yet it happens. And so that's the driving tension behind this novel. So anyways, I wanted to get that in there before we moved on, because I think it's helpful for people who want, who listen to this beforehand and don't understand the full context of what's going on with British society. So. Sure. And hey, people who are watching like All Creatures Great and Small or something on PBS right now, even then it's helpful because you still see it. Britain still has that all over the place. It's really fascinating. Yeah. The way that just still permeates throughout their culture. What's that sound? It's the baggage plane flying over. Well, it's an airplane, and it indicates baggage check, the part of the show where we give our baggage. Uh, what baggage? Jake, what baggage did you bring to this reading of Pride and Prejudice? Well, this is my third reading of Pride and Prejudice, and so I guess a lot. Um, first time I read Pride and Prejudice was at your encouragement. Years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, I had a misconception of what it was based on um, ideas of Austin and of thought of it much more as a gothic romance than what it really is. And so I read it. I loved it. It's a big part of why we started this podcast. Just our friendship, three of us over literature and read it again for the first episode of The Bookening, and loved it some more, and have since read all of not Austin's novels, and man, I was excited to come back to Pride and Prejudice, and I loved every second in it. One of my top three novels of all time. I just, I am happy to read this book, and I'm happy 
to turn back around and read it again. I love it. I love Austin. And and I love you, man. Love is in the air. We're in the Super Bowl commercial uh, phase right now. So that's an old Super Bowl commercial. I love you, man. I love you, man. Yep. I love you, man. You're not getting my bed light, Johnny. Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this reading of P&P? I mean, I really wish that I could go back in a time machine and build Jane Austen a room of her own. Mm-hmm. Because really I can only imagine, if only she had had a room, she might have been able to add some crazy, weird, pseudo-transcendental relationship between the main character and the priest that lives in the swamplands by himself or something, you know? And then blind Darcy so that they could live in happy peace with one another. Sharing Thinking each other, thinking, yeah, all the same thoughts. They they eat each other's sandwiches. Finish each other's sandwiches. They they eat each other's sandwiches. (laughs) Finish each other's sandwiches. (laughs) The sign of a great romance. You eat each other's sandwiches. Yeah. Uh, I eat the old sandwich. What? Uh, (laughs) Any other baggage? Oh, yeah. yeah. I had read this before. We did our now infamous pigskin podcast seven years ago, guys. Yeah. Seven years. This is our year of Jubilee. Yeah, there mm. you go. We're finally released from slavery. <laughs> Warhorn had us in chains and the basement, and now they've freed us to be our real Warhorn selves. Yep. So we're going to tell you what you, we really think about Pride and Prejudice, y'all. That's right. And guess what? I think it's amazing. And I thought it was really great then, but I hadn't read. So, that what's changed in the seven years? I had read Pride and Prejudice at that time, and I liked Jane Austen, but I hadn't read many of her other works. Now, I'm coming back to Pride and Prejudice, having read her entire uh, oeuvre, and it's great. It lives up to it, its position as one of the best. The preeminent. Yeah, I wonder wonder if my position on any of the other books will change, but I mean, right now, I just... I mean, I I want Emma to be better, but I can't imagine there. I mean, this book is just so great. It's so compelling. Emma's- it's so moving by the end. It's hilarious from start to finish. It just moves you right along, like you said earlier. I just yeah, I have so yeah, much I, fun with it. I don't know of a novel that is more simultaneously luxurious and cozy. Like you're just living in the world, hanging out with the people. You know, it's got that kind of vibe that's the same reason people watch it, Downton Abbey or something, because they just kind of like to live there because they hate their life. So, it's got that. I mean, it, it does. You do just like being around these people and in this world, but it's also just moves like a bullet. So, it's incredible. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anything can top it. How many laughs? Like how many? How many books? you get as many like laugh out loud by yourself in a corner reading this book moments like i just don't know that there are are many books as funny yeah i don't think we've ever really stressed this about jane austen the fact that we always talk about her great insight and her discernment and her wisdom but i like it that we're talking about this that in the end she just really knows how to write a book that entertains yeah she's it does read really smoothly and you want to go from page to the page you know, you laugh, they have a word you for that. Cr- it's you a laugh, page turner. You cringe. You, you, uh, <laughs> well, I just, you're, you're you laugh, find you myself cry. just laughing out loud. I, I, I get, by the end of this, I do get emotional. I don't think I cried, but I, I do get just the beauty of, I think, 
preparing to preach on Ruth and Darcy and Boaz are so very similar. Mm-hmm. Boaz and Darcy both have this high position and they make real sacrifices and give up a lot to cover the woman they love and to redeem yeah. them. And that's always a beautiful story. And so the beauty of uh, the way Darcy just decides, I love Elizabeth and that means what it means. And so. It's an interesting connection. I wonder if she had that in mind because I mean, Boaz also has that higher position than Ruth. Right. And here you have yeah, Darcy. Bo- Boaz is probably in his forties or something like that. Maybe even old, yeah. like he's an older guy. Ruth is in her twenties, probably. Easy. Forties um, isn't so old, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, forties is the new thirties. That is one thing that I brought back to the the reading this time is we're seven years older now. We're getting closer yeah, to being Mr. True. Bennett than we are to being Mr. Darcy. That's, yeah, I really right. connected and therefore hated Mr. Bennett in a whole new way. Yeah, his disconnection from his family, his holding himself up in his study. I think we were soft on him last go around. Hey, listen, before we get there, we're, we're, we're so eager to talk about this. Let me give my baggage really quick. My baggage is I love Jane Austen and I think she's great. And I've enjoyed every one of her novels that we've read. And she was in many ways the instigator for this podcast, uh, just because she's so much fun to talk about. And when I was a kid, I assumed not that she was gothic romance, but that she was proto-feminist. I think I just had it programmed into me that she was socially important in an annoying liberal way. And so, to discover not only that she's not that, but that in fact she is the medicine to that. And she is such a a warm tonic that just spreads through your body and you're like, ah, normal sexuality. Yay, that feels nice. Uh, was, was really an exciting discovery to make when I was 14 or something like that, which is when I think I first read Pride and Prejudice for school or something like that. And I've, I've been in love with Jane Austen ever since. And she's great. And she came back and coming back to Pride and Prejudice, it was just like getting into a warm bath or something. It is, there's something so cozy and fun about it. And I hate carriages and I hate balls and I am not interested in any of that stuff, but there is something cozy about Entering into Jane Austen's mind, this world of people at this level of dialogue, at this level of insight, you know, and just just living there for a little while. It's ennobling. It's elevating. She's the best. Tolstoy is the only person we talk about who's better. Wait, you don't find this to be stodgy and closed off in a world you wouldn't want to inhabit? No. No, I'll tell you what world I wouldn't want to inhabit is a world where people win the day by giving into their most narcissistic impulses and living in narcissistic fantasy land with each other, like those Bronte sisters always like to write about. So, because that world doesn't exist. And those ladies were crazy and unhappy. Whereas Jane Austen is a realist and also funny. So, that's my baggage. But where were we? Uh, we are. We, oh, it's the sound of the camera shutter <laughs> ushering us into the big picture segment. So, we're we're talking about the big picture. You guys remember the old camera shutter sound effect that we always use on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So. It's shades of that very first episode, right? It's like an old friend. It's sort of like trauma. Yeah. Well, so, Jake, you were just saying we were too easy on Mr. B. And we put him in the monster squad. I mean, we said he was the villain of the novel. And yet, we were still too easy on him, you, you say. Yep. 
I just have, uh, and I have gone back and listened or mostly listened to the old episodes, but I had before that even an impression that we were just like dancing around and uncomfortable with the assertion that he's the the real villain of the story. And I just don't have any qualms or hesitations whatsoever with that right now. Well, the argument that, to my shame, I made on the old podcast, although I still think this argument is somewhat compelling, so maybe it's not to my shame, but I said, Mr. Bennett is, he can't actually be a total villain because he gets all the good lines. And you don't do that if you're wanting people to hate this character. And the fact is, anyone who approaches this novel for the first time, who isn't thinking too hard about it, loves Mr. Bennett pretty quickly because he's so funny in the first chapter with the your nerves have been my old friends all these years and stuff like that you're not thinking about like this guy being a jerk that threw off his responsibility you're thinking about how funny he is in dealing with this, this ridiculous woman i think i mean am i am i crazy I'm, I'm sort of remaking my old argument i guess but that's what we said on podcast mach one is that what we said or is that what you said? That's what I said on podcast Mach 1. In his defense that he's got Mr. Mrs. Bennett as a wife. And I mean So Yeah, but at the end of the day, he chose Mrs. Bennett and he had a responsibility to his family and his responsibility was not to sit back and mock and make fun of his wife. And Austin makes that yep. really clear throughout the whole novel. And so he gets some zingers, but all of those zingers are in fact to his shame. And the fact is Lizzie does mature beyond that when she she starts there and by the end she's very put off by his little and she can't engage in that kind of humor with him anymore after she is sort of come of age and differentiated through the help of Darcy like Darcy is the one that awakens her to the idea that when he says even your father even at times your father like that hurt that hit close to home and it rung true and so she hated him for it until she saw the justice of it and then she had to separate herself from it. And then we have all the judgments she makes about Mr. Bennett and his failure, not just to cover, to protect in his daughters, but to cover the nakedness of his wife and at least mitigate the damage. And the novel While he was says, fully capable of it intellectually, but right. unwilling to engage on any kind of uh, moral, spiritual, emotional level. I think that's right. And if you think about him being Elizabeth's favorite, and you think about the fact that she got a lot of her snarky sense of humor from him, and if you think about the fact that that snarky sense of humor is part of what imperils her relationship with Darcy, and part of what sets off the whole pride and prejudice brouhaha that our characters have to overcome. I mean, he is he is the foundation of the character flaw that Elizabeth has to overcome in order to self-actualize, like just on a structural level. He's the villain. Yeah, well, and you have these things that she says toward the end. So, her father, so, so she's talking about her family. In her own past behavior, there was a constant source of vexation and regret, and in the unhappy defects of her family, a subject of yet heavier chagrin. They were hopeless of remedy. Her father, contented with laughing at them, would never exert himself to restrain the wild giddiness of his youngest daughters, and her mother, with manners so far from right herself, was entirely insensible of the evil. Yeah. So you have both culprits, but also dad just will not exert himself. Take he, he will not take, he, he will not, he's, he is happy to be a fat, lazy jerk who sits in his study and reads all day, and then comes out at dinner time to make fun of his wife and kids and uh, wink at Lizzie. 
and adores the opportunities he have to he has to have a, a Wickham or a Collins around so that he can wink at Lizzie and mock them. And that may be funny at the in the first half, but turns out the joke's on on him. Yeah, it's got brutal consequences. Well, and if you t- if you put this in line with Jane Austen's larger oeuvre, Jane Austen just I, and I'm sure we've made this point before, perhaps in the initial Pride and Prejudice podcast, but I just can't think of an of of a writer that is more patriarchal than she is. Her bad women always go bad because there's not a man around to curb them, and that's Lady Catherine, and that's Mrs. Bennet, and that's Emma Woodhouse. Insofar as Emma has problems, it's because her dad is just checked out and worried about being sick. And you can just go through her novels, and you will find case after case after case after case of a woman who goes bad because there's not a man around to discipline them and a man who goes bad because he's unwilling or unable to take responsibility. I mean, that's Wickham, that's Willoughby, that's the standard Jane Austen villain. Well, which which chapter villains. is, can you guys remember which chapter where it is in the book where it talks about very briefly the courtship between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett? It is. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah, it's in, I, I have some notes here of just various examples of Mr. Bennett. That's um, pretty telling. And I, I think I've got it. This idea here, the whole thing with Lydia. Yeah. Lydia will never be easy till she's exposed herself in some public place or other, and we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as mm. under the present circumstances. That's wicked. Completely wicked. And then Elizabeth responds. If you were aware of the great, very great disadvantage to us all, which must ar- must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded, imprudent, imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in the affair. And then he makes a joke of it. Already arisen? What? Has she frightened away some of your lovers? Poor Lizzie. But do not be cast down. Such squeamish uses cannot bear to be connected with a little absurdity or not worth a regret. Yep, and that's not. Come, let me good. see the list of pitiful fellows who have been kept aloof by Lydia's folly. Yeah, that's wicked. Uh, Brandon, your chap- the chapter you're looking for is chapter 42, and the quote is, Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she could not have formed a very pleasing opinion of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. Her father, captivated by youth and beauty, and that appearance of good humor, which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman whose weak understanding and a liberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. Respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever, and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. Yeah, see, that that right there is pretty telling. Here's a guy who married a woman who turned out not to be what he wanted. And so you have to imagine, I mean, I think there's no question that what Jane Austen wants us to realize is Mrs. Bennet is who she is because she has a husband who despises and... Um, belittles her at every opportunity. And so, of course, she's going to become petty and nervous and a gossip because she has no love and affection from her husband. Well, and you keep going in that paragraph. Um, To his wife, he was very little otherwise indebted than as her ignorance and folly had contributed to his amusement. Yeah, I mean, it's just awful. I mean, what she does is she, Jane Austen realizes that a father and husband shapes the character of everyone within his house. Elizabeth people, had, n- had never been blind to the impropriety of her father's behavior as a husband. She had always seen it with pain. 
But respecting his abilities and grateful for his affectionate treatment of herself, she endeavored to forget what she could not overlook and to banish from her thoughts with conti- that continual breach of conjugal obligation and decorum, which in exposing his wife to the contempt of her own children was so highly reprehensible. Hmm. But she had never felt so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage, nor ever been so fully aware of the evils arising from so ill-judged a direction of talents, talents which, rightly used, might at least have preserved the respectability of his daughters, even if incapable of enlarging the mind of his wife. I mean, that's... Yeah, you don't have to Do you wonder what Austin thinks? (laughs) (laughs) I think this is another case where it is just... We, as readers, are so stupid, like, it's hard not to bring Donald Pleasance into the, not Donald Pleasance. Sutherland. Sutherland into this. It's hard not to bring the guy from the Darcy Goes Sexy Swimming movie into this. The BBC uh, version. We're, we're, Darcy Goes Sexy Swimming. Yeah. Uh, what, what's that guy's name? Colin Firth. Whatever, the dad. Generally, in adaptations, this character has been played as pretty life likable. And, and so, you just... Without even thinking, you just bring that into it. And right there in the text, it's screaming at you like, he was a bad dude who has mismanaged anything, everything. If he'd put aside a little bit of money every year, he would have been able to bail Lydia out. But he didn't because he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. He just counted on having a boy and that was going to solve everything. So he lived lavishly like a moron. Right. Well, you guys want to hear some of our other opinions and see if we agree with them? Yeah, this is fun. Okay, so this is this one's interesting. Jake says that Jane is the one to aspire to. That's a little unfair because we were, we talked around it and we kind of said you want the best of Elizabeth and the best of Jane. But just for fun, I'm going to assign this opinion to to Jake so we have a whipping boy. Because at some point, Jake does you know the question is starkly asked. Which, who would you want your daughter to be like, or, or whose tutelage would you want her to be under, Elizabeth or Jane? And we all kind I, th- of- I think it was who would, who would you rather have as a wife, the mother, who would make a better mother of the kids? And I think I said that. That uh, was how you got, you got off the hook because you said, well. She'd get all the benefits of Elizabeth as an aunt while just having the kids grow up with healthy, natural affection, the healthy, natural affection of Jane. So, Jake said, Elizabeth, what a jerk. I can't stand that woman. Jane, ah, my heart, be still my heart. Do you guys agree with Jake? I'd like to know the actual quote, Nathan. Like, uh, so the question is, do we think that Jane is preferable to Elizabeth, both character and being a mother? I think what we had settled on was that Elizabeth would be the better teacher, right? Yeah, that's that's where we landed. We said, Elizabeth, with all her experience, would would be the better person. Yeah, I feel like I even only took uh, Jane up for sake of argument to make it interesting. But well, anytime I which I think I think you can make it I think you can make it interesting by saying Jane would have more Jane has more natural affection for everybody and so the kids would benefit from Jane's natural motherly affection and sweetness and that Elizabeth would make an awesome aunt if she was involved. Yeah. But Jane would be more deferential. They're, they're both going to be great. Yeah. Darcy's going to be a better, better dad than Bingley. In- yes, yes, for sure. So, I mean, if you're picking a family to raise your kids, you pick the Darcys. Because of Darcy. Because of Darcy, yeah. Yeah, that's easy. 
Let me see other. I mean, opinions. I'm back to Darcy being better than Knightley, so. I don't know that I can join you there, but I did. We we went in our Emma podcasts, which I haven't listened to for a while. We we did definitely say, oh, Knightley so much more well-rounded than Darcy. Reading Pride and Prejudice this time, I was like, no, Darcy's not just Bruce Wayne. He's he's pretty well-developed and interesting, and you get, you get yeah, a lot I mean, of facets he, of Darcy. There's a reason he gets that pride qualifier. Yeah. He's a great and hero. So it's not it's not just like the whole pride issue was uh a non sequitur that actually wasn't real. He actually right. was pretty prideful. And he does actually and have to was overcome humbled. something. Yeah. Yeah. He was humbled by this woman turning him down. He's like, yeah. What? I'm Darcy. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I mean yeah. he had to deal with that and guess what? It just it worked out that it did some good for him instead of turning him into a bitter callous jerk well and he's a little dreary he's a little humorless in in an interesting <laughs> way like he he needs elizabeth yeah. to sort of poke him it's yeah. the last page of the novel is just like well i think that like the these movie adaptations the way they deal with this is when she goes to is it Pim, what pimberley where he yeah. his hall that what gets revealed is that darcy always was the mr darcy that she would eventually fall in love with right that's the way the movies do it. Yeah. Instead, right. I think There's the book portrays. There is, but I think the books are more well rounded. In the the book is more well rounded in the sense that you see that he always had what would become Mister Darcy as a part of his character, and that part of him is what luckily matures and grows in the latter part of the novel. Right. I mean, there's a, the, there is the reality that the servants have always loved him, and his sis- he's always been awesome to his sister. But he could have always been. Cold and proud and... The cold and proud, because that was in his lineage as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. No, I, I I don't agree with us anymore there. I I may still lay in with Nathan, and I just... I like Mr. Knightley, but... I think Jake's going to come back around the second that we read Emma. I mean... That's, I that's, that's I possible. But it's, this is almost... I mean, it's almost like it's a Warren Peace versus bias. Andy Grant argument. Like, yeah. It's, it's, to, it's... There's really good reasons for both. Okay, here's another... Here's here's the thing that I'm tempted to maybe move a little bit away from. Man, our hot take on those podcasts, which if you don't know, listener, those were the first three podcasts we ever did, period. Not just for three bookings. Those were the first podcasts, first time we ever put mouth to microphone. We so wanted to defend Charlotte and say she made a good decision and people make good pragmatic decisions with marriage all the time and let's not romanticize this and she's found a way to be a good wife to collins and she's made it work and there's nothing wrong with that and i didn't pull up a specific quote from that conversation but i feel like we went so far in that direction that we almost made it sound like elizabeth was stupid for rejecting collins like we really wanted to make oh. the point that yeah for a if we kind went of person there's great wisdom in what charlotte did yeah, I, I, if we went that far, then I, I agree with pulling back. I, I, I don't think Elizabeth should have accepted Collins. I think, but I think Charlotte should have. That would have been miserable. Yeah, yeah I think Charlotte didn't have options. And if you're going, well, there's a certain kind of wisdom in doing what Charlotte did. And if you're going to do what Charlotte did, then you have to do it the way that Charlotte did it. And what she doesn't do is what Mister Bennett does. Right. She marries a man for his the financial stability that he brings to her life. 
and Mr. Bennett marries a woman for youth and beauty. Mrs. Bennett cannot please Mr. Bennett, so he resorts to mocking her and laughing at her and being checked out and retreating to his man cave. Charlotte has space that she's carved out for herself, but she will not resort, at least early on in her marriage, to mocking or subverting. She covers his nakedness wherever and however she can, and she's grateful for the fact that he's a devoted husband who does his best, who will always do whatever his own very weird sense of propriety demands. But he's he's a man who has a code, at least. And yeah, and he's also a man who she's found a way to bring out his best qualities, that he is, like you said, a devoted husband, that he likes to garden, all these things that mm-hmm. kind of, this is like a foil, a small picture of what's going to happen with Elizabeth when she goes to Pemberley. We build these prejudices about people, and then when we actually see them in their actual, when we, when life inevitably adds more dimension to them than we want to give them. They're not nearly as bad as we originally thought they would be. Yeah, I mean, Collins right. is still Collins, and Collins still, I mean, he has to get his parting jab in with Elizabeth. Yeah, he's, he's pretty, yeah. well, he's pretty nasty when he sends that letter late in the novel. And that letter is nasty, so, and Charlotte. what is that thing that he says? Yeah, there's no doubting that <laughs> you he's may, petty. You, you may, yeah. you see on what a footing we are, you see how continually w- engaged we are there. In truth, I must acknowledge that with all the disadvantage of this humble parsonage, I should not think anyone abiding it in it an object of compassion while they are sharers in our intimacy at Rosings. Words were insufficient for the elevation of his feelings, and he was obliged to walk about the room while Elizabeth tried to unite civility and truth in a few short sentences. Unite civility and truth in a few short sentences. <laughs> you may, in fact, carry a very favorable report of us into Hertfordshire, my dear cousin. I flatter myself at least that you will be able to do so. Lady Catherine's great attentions to Mrs. Collins you have been a daily witness of, and altogether I trust it does not appear that your friend has drawn an unfortunate but on this point, it will be as well to be silent. <laughs> Only let me assure you, my dear Elizabeth, that I can from my heart most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance See, of character and ideas between us. I know, that's what I thought. Yeah, I wonder if she did. We seem to have been designed for each other. Elizabeth could safely say that it was a great happiness where that was the case. And with equal sincerity could add that she firmly believed and rejoiced in his domestic comforts. She was not sorry, however, to have the recital of them interrupted by the entrance of the lady from whom they sprung. <laughs> Poor <What> Charlotte. B I T C I won't say the last letter. <sighs> Boy. H. Um Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Bitcoin. I, I mean did we so obviously, the relationship between Collins and Charlotte is part of the thematic. Sure, I, I don't well, want to part say of it, tapestry of this book. So I mean, you have the de- various failures of ways that people go ahead, Jake. Sorry, I I think it primes the pump uh, for Elizabeth's humbling at the hands of Darcy. Of Darcy, yeah. um, she goes and she's just surprised that I mean, she does feel bad that Charlotte has to live with Mr. Collins, but also she's like, I, she has to admit that Charlotte's doing well for herself. And that she can be wrong. Yeah, and that she can be, that Char- Charlotte doesn't seem unhappy. Charlotte doesn't seem yeah. miserable. And, well, and everybody- it's, it's all caught up in the same ideas of, of sort of romanticism that fed into her attraction to Wickham mm-hmm. as well, right? So, like, Collins and Wickham 
are both foils on opposite sides of Darcy. Right. And Darcy's the third way, the something other. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody wants to make this story into the story of, you know, Charlotte's the foil because she chose tragically. She did what she had to. She was pragmatic, whereas Elizabeth held out for love. And, and Lydia whole- chose impulsively. And Lydia chose impulsively. But what she really have to do is hold out for love. And yes, that's there. And that's part of the charm of it, that, that there's this one in a million thing that happens. She held out and she was rewarded for it. There is that fairy tale element. I don't want to deny that that's to some extent there. But I think it's much more complicated than that. Charlotte made a nuanced, smart choice. And Elizabeth is going through life just shooting from the hip. And part of what I think she sees in Charlotte is, okay, actually not being prejudiced, not being proud can work. And so, in a sense, she's humbled. She becomes more like Charlotte. She becomes someone who's able to make a nuanced decision instead of just romantically shooting from the hip. So, I don't think that this is the triumph of romance over pragmatism. It's more like the triumph of good sense over bad sense. I think that's most of what we said. Well, that was the big like thing that we harped on. That was our takeaway from that. Well, our, like you said, our this hot is take. A, a little bit of Elizabeth's inner monologue about Charlotte. She had chosen it with her eyes open. And though evidently regretting that her visitors were to go, she did not seem to ask for compassion. Her home and her housekeeping, her parish and her poultry, and all their dependent concerns had not lost their charms. So there's just that sense of Charlotte knew what she was getting into and she knew better than I did actually. And, and I think it's, yeah, it's in Jane Austen. It's to Jane Austen's credit that she's not, she doesn't pull one like a Hardy, for example, would have where towards the end of the novel, we see Charlotte again and she's now miserable and leaving. Yeah. yeah, And leaving Collins because the charm is worn off. That's what you would do if you were setting her up in opposition to, you know, Elizabeth was brave enough to, hold out for love, but Charlotte wouldn't. Then what you want to do is, to make your point, is really punish Charlotte. You know, she chose poorly. Uh, Elizabeth chose rightly. But Jane Austen is so much smarter and more complex and more nuanced and more interesting than that. She's not just going to punish Charlotte so that she can flatter all the Elizabeths of the world. Yeah, And that, that, that is the big thing that people get wrong about this novel is they see themselves as Elizabeth, which you're not. You're probably Mary or you're probably Lydia Maybe you're Jane. Chances are you're not Elizabeth because there aren't that many of those. If you are, the novel's not telling you how great you are. It's telling you you need to wise up and get over some of your snarkiness and some of your prejudice and some of your pride, whichever one she's supposed to have. I always get confused by whose pride and whose prejudice. I guess Darcy's prejudice. I think that's part of the... Yeah, that's part of the part of the tapestry. This novel is not telling you, A, you're Elizabeth, and B, that therefore you're awesome. This novel is telling you, we need to grow up and be humble. Let me see here. Yeah, according to this, it's uh, Fitzwilliam Darcy represents pride and Elizabeth represents prejudice. That's yeah. what I would have, that's how that, I would place it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That makes if, sense. Uh, if, uh, if Elizabeth hadn't been insulted by Darcy and therefore prejudiced against him, she might have done a little better. Yes, yes. I think that's I guess true. also give some advice that you should go hang around the ponds of really rich people. Mm. Yeah. That's, well, that's, that's one way to get yeah. rid of prejudice. I, I do that all the time. I go to Hyde Park and just hang around hang the ponds. Around the I pond. take sexy swims in the ponds. Yeah, that's how you landed your... You, just, you go to 
Beverly Hills and just sort of asked to tour the houses of the rich and famous. And mm-hmm. yeah. That's how Nathan yeah. landed Meredith. She saw you come out of a pond, dripping yeah, she wet. Had, she had just finished a music video that she was shooting. Yeah. And uh, she saw me emerge <laughs> sexily from a f- pond and yeah. great. Yes, Elizabeth is is the is is prejudice. And it makes so so much sense. She has such a complete psychological profile because quick wit, especially in a young person, often unites with hasty judgment and that is Elizabeth and she just needs a little bit more experience under her belt bonnet. What's that? Bonnet. Or under her bonnet. Wear a yeah. belt. A corset. Yeah. Yeah, probably under her not. corset. <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Corsets hurt. That's what we learned from another great role that Elizabeth played. That's right. You know Guys. all their names, too. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, Elizabeth Swan. That was her name in that stupid thing. She played mm-hmm. a lot of Elizabeth's She of the Cheekbones. <sighs> okay. Well, I don't think I'm going to take us to the villain's lair or the crawler of did secondary that. characters or the twists and turns. I mean, twists and turns is where we talk about the the plot. I mean, this there's a reason people like this one the best, and it's because it has the best plot. And it's the most classic plot. Yeah. It's the most classic plot. And it's classically, you know what I do love? And, and I always forget about this coming back to the novel, but I love a movie or a book where the hero only emerges gradually. Like you don't know who it's actually about until you get several chapters in. I love in the movie Alien that you don't know Ripley is going to be the survivor until, you know, maybe. Until she survives and she f- defeats the alien, but she's not sort of, they don't throw a spotlight on her. Like, it's Ripley. She's the one we need to follow. I always really love that when somebody does that. And of course, nobody doesn't know that Pride and Prejudice is about Elizabeth Bennett and the adventures of Elizabeth Bennett. But it's really fun to go back to the novel and watch how gradually it sort of circles around her and then focuses on her. It's the first, It's it's got to be like five or six chapters before... It really becomes the Elizabeth Bennett. First, she's just one of the Bennett sisters, and it doesn't really highlight her more than the others. It says her dad liked her better. I mean, it's she starts to emerge, but she gradually emerges. And I, I just there's something about doing that in a plot that I really respond to. I don't know why. Boy, so I could also take us to the Salon of Style or the Haven of Reflection upon deeper meaning. You know what? We've done most of this just through our conversation. Yeah, I think I think we we like, talked about style conversation. Very first thing we did, because that's really what kind of struck us this time, was just how engaging she is, how well she can tell a story. She's she's just amazing. Mr. Bennett's in the villain category, and I think Jake nailed it when he said that he's kind of like the foil to Elizabeth, that everything she has to overcome is because of him. Mm-hmm. And that really helps you put that. If anybody doubts that argument, then I think that's kind of our winning point right there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's in the text, as Jake pointed out. It's just, yeah. it just says that. <laughs> you don't have to dig very deep. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the well, argument okay. against Fine. it is just... Uh, don't have those laurels I was throwing at you, Jake. Let's. <laughs> hey, no, I'll take them. I'll take them because nobody wants that to be true, even though yeah. it's in the text. And everybody wants to argue against it, even though it's in the text. And even the last time we did this is... Um, prepared as we were to make the case, we I think we're all uncomfortable saying what just the text says. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And we were just not as good at podcasting as we are now. We were we were less upfront. There, there's any number of places where I sense, especially myself, since I know myself the best, pulling my punches and or 
adopting an yeah. opinion that's close to the one that I have, but maybe I'm adjusting it a little bit based on what I think people might want. We've or grown in confidence. Yes, for sure. We did giggle nervously for 30 minutes before we started recording on our first ever session. And that's not a lie. Uh, <laughs> Big skins tossing on the round. Yeah. Well, it's hilarious. Why wouldn't we giggle? Here, here's a, here's, here's my final question as we reevaluate re- Pride and Prejudice. Or, or let me make an assertion and see if you guys agree. Here's the assertion. And this might be a, a hot, hot take type assertion. This novel crosses the aisle worse than many of the novels that we have recommended that was a really weir- weird way to phrase that what i mean is we've had a lot of luck getting people to read and then tell us how thankful they are for things like east of eden and a yeah. to some extent there there have been yeah. there have been a handful of novels that people are just like thank you thank you thank you 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 would think that pride and prejudice would be premier among that group but Actually, and maybe this is just because everyone who's going to read Pride and Prejudice has already read Pride and Prejudice. Actually, I think we get more like somebody tries to read it and they're like, I don't quite get this or it feels slow or I'm not – why I'm a guy. Why am I reading this chick's book or – Yeah, I think – People stumble over Pride and Prejudice when they – And it's usually, it's usually young men who are inexperienced relationally. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I mean... It's not a crime um, to be inexperienced relationally. I think because we... I think there are very few young men that can be taught when it comes to relationships. I think a lot of young men have to learn by experience. Yeah. And by example. And so there's just like a lot in this in Austin that will go over your head until you are already there. And then you can wish all you want that you had read Austin when you were younger or that you Austin had been put into the hands of a of a younger you before this or that experience. But the reality is I mean, how many young men have we given this book to who have been like, "What? I don't get it. I don't understand. Are you saying I should just be rich?" Yeah. We've gotten and also, that response more than once. I mean, that's that that sounds like a a callow representation of the kind of young man that we might give this book to, but we've, we've had that literal quote happen more than once. Okay. Yeah. So, so the real drawing point is that Darcy's a bagillionaire. Are you saying I should just be a bagillionaire? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I had you read this book. Yes. Yeah. That's what we're saying. Yeah. And I think sadly, another big reason that this book is harder to cross that threshold is that it's just not uh, for as engaging as the plot is. It's not the type of engaging that people are used to giving themselves to nowadays. Well, they, they've fed on, I'm sorry to say this, but they fed on so much garbage and so much of the garbage that is, for as much as I love Harry Potter, Harry Potter spawned a new wave of just absolute junk food. Yep. That's so accessible for kids to get their hands on and never be pushed into any kind of mature reading that, or anything that's not just like, a hero's journey type of a plot where it's like character matters and sitting with people and insight and humor. Like the, the, those things just aren't what people. And the other thing too, are you guys, how familiar are you guys with accelerated reader programs? Pretty familiar. Yeah. Have you know. ever, have you ever gone and looked? So AR is this like, we incentivize kids to read by having AR goals and they have to hit their AR goals. 
And we assign scores to books based on perceived reading levels. And some of those are really arbitrary based on word count and other things. But you're incentivized, you test out at your reading level, and then you're incentivized. You have a range of books that qualify to get you AR points. And you're incentivized to read books in that level and to just slam them and then take tests on them and get your AR points up. What that does, I mean, the way they classify, so Amanda was going through this the other day. And so like a book like Heidi, for instance, that's a little girl's book. That is, uh, that is a ninth grade uh, reading level book, according to them. Wow. That's a little girl's book. Right. But that's a ninth grade reading level book. So it's way out of the range and way more challenging than what they're saying a fourth grade girl or a third grade girl or a fifth grade girl should be reading. So by the time, so they're incentivized to read junk. And then by the time they get to ninth grade, when Heidi fits in there, they're, they've aged out of it. It's not, I'm not, Heidi's just the, the, the thing that stuck in my brain that Amanda threw out there as she was just sort of like going through and complaining about this because it is a struggle that I've had with my kids where it's like, I want them to read other things, but they, they're constantly reading. But they're reading because school has these AR goals, but it's like, so they're reading all this trash. And it's like, they have to, if they're going to try to read something that I want them to read, they have to fit it in and they have to work on it. Like, and it's just not. Yeah. I think we have an educational culture that rightly sees the threat of visual entertainment and visual media and says, we have to stand against that. But then we elevate reading for reading's sake right. to such a degree that it's just like, how many goosebumps have you read? Exactly. And it's like, and it's like there's nothing. Uh, yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe you could actually make an argument better goosebumps than nothing, but maybe not. I mean, there's lots of reading that is just junk, that is just empty calories, that is a waste of time. We want yeah. people to, I mean, I mean, the joke I always used to make is Harry Potter has inspired a, a generation of readers to read books about Harry Potter. And it's, it's true. It, well, look. Even Harry Potter is disincentivized. So Lucy is in sixth grade and she's reading a Harry, she's been reading a Harry Potter book since Christmas break. And the reason it, she's been reading it since Christmas break is because she has to, she has to, she is not going to hit her first quarter or her third quarter AR goal because Harry Potter is too big. Huh. And so she can't accumulate enough books. And so she has to keep. Uh, pausing reading Harry Potter to go read a bunch of junk little books that she can take tests on so she can hit her third quarter AR goal instead of just finishing Harry Potter. So Harry Potter is too much. Yeah. Right. It's wild. Yeah. My, my second grade daughter is, has been trying to work through the Narnia books, but Narnia is outside of her AR range. It's too high. And so she has to keep stopping and going and reading the junk. Like she's in second grade. She's read like the Howl trilogy. She's working through Narnia. She's a good reader. And she's interested and excited, but she has to keep stopping to go and read these like little, like tiny, like, I don't even know books about almost like picture books type things because it's for, it has to be in her second grader thing and she has to accumulate enough of them. And so you just like create this culture of addiction to junk food mm -hmm. and then you, you turn around and I'm sitting there looking at Lucy in sixth grade or Peter in eighth grade. And thinking, I was in fifth or sixth grade when I read Huck Finn. Yeah, that's like, when they like threw uh, stupid great expectations at me and stuff like that. The idea that you read Pride and Prejudice at 14 and Peter is almost 14 and it's like, he's not there. Yeah. yeah. 
it's an uphill battle to get him there. And the private Christian school is working against Get your kids out of public and private education. Are you paying attention yet? <laughs> uh, Peter's been trying to, Peter had been trying to read the Iliad because he'd gotten into Rick Riordan sure. garbage through AR stuff. But poor guy. Yeah. And then you see all the studies about college age kids who can't read beyond a fourth grade level or high schoolers that test at, and it's just mind bogglingly pathetic. And then you go and you sit on your lawn and you yell at clouds and shake your cane. Yep. Yeah. Point being, I guess we were talking about, I think what we're actually doing is mourning the fact that the, the world is working against people being able to come to Austin and really benefit from her. Well, and it's like if you're right crippled, away until they've had we, the, you, we can't just throw you on a treadmill if you're crippled. You can't just say, here's a book of wisdom. You have to have enough wisdom to access the book of wisdom. And unfortunately, people just don't have the foundation built anymore for a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and even, I mean, I remember having the same sort of experience reading Emma, having read Pride and, Pre Pride and Prejudice twice, coming into Emma and being annoyed for a while and not really fully ready to trust that Austin wants me to hate Emma. and. Mm -hmm. Mocker. It's like, who is this brat? Why are we reading about this? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, my mistake. I didn't give Austin enough credit. Yeah. 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 We've all been undernourished. So I'm, I'm not. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, how many carriages out of 14 do you give to Pride and Prejudice? And any final thoughts on this novel, Brandon? Um, man, final thoughts on this novel. It's like, I mean, what do you say? That everybody should go out and read this book? Sure. Yeah. There's, the Mona Lisa is good. It, yeah. What, it's, it's, what you should, what I have to say is you had, you have to, you cannot count on anybody to prepare your kids. Yeah. I think that's what I was going to say. To be is, ready to read Austin, but you, yeah. you have to figure yeah. out how to do it and you have to be proactive from a young age. And yeah. I thought I was, and I'm still behind. Yeah. I know? think that's, that's, that's the point to take away is that. You as parents should be proactive and be looking for ways to help your children fight against the current of where our culture is, because it's not an you guys are absolutely it's not right. An exaggeration we, to say that the world is working to just make the Western canon obsolete. They are, and part of it is this stupid, stupid tendency, like you were saying, with the era readers, and everything is becoming about people have gone the opposite extreme. They think that just any reading is good reading, and that's absurd. Mm -hmm. You need to read just like you want to eat what's good. You want to read what's good and healthy. And so there are ways to help your children get ready for Jane Austen, but most likely just throwing them into the AR public school, private school system is not going to be enough. So, and hey, it'll be really sad. I guess that's my takeaway is it will be really sad if we have a complete generation who loses the value of Jane Austen because they haven't been prepared for it. It'll be on us. It'll, it's a failure of our generation to not prepare the next one for mm -hmm. uh, loving and appreciating things. No, nobody, nobody went out of their way. I, and my mom did. I shouldn't, I should give credit where his credits do and not uh, be a jerky face. But I don't think that many people went out of their way to prepare me. I think a lot of what helped was just being interested in a wider range of boy of of Harry Potter's 
So I didn't just read Harry Potter. I read The Count of Monte Cristo and I read Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and Fu Manchu. And I, I liked adventure. I liked Hero's Journey stuff. I, for whatever reason, by God's grace, was able to get a broader range of styles and of, you know, it's like if you grow up watching old movies, your brain doesn't have to adjust every time you see something black and white. I think my brain was just more used to, this is how people from the Victorian era put together a paragraph. This is how a Russian puts together a paragraph. This is how a Frenchman puts together a paragraph. I just had a little bit more of that. And I'm sure that helped me a lot when I came yeah, to someone like Jane. I've actually been, I've been thinking along the same lines of just the real thing to do here is not even so much push classics as push genres. Yeah. Like, if I can get your brain into the reality that heroes, there is more, more fun to be had than Heroes Journey Adventure stories. Mm -hmm. And so I've try, I'm trying, I've, I'm working different angles with different kids, but you know, whether yeah. it's like if I can get somebody into a, a, a Agatha Christie or it's kind of candy detective stuff, but hey, that's a whole world of stuff out there. Yeah. yeah, I think if you can get people to be by genre, by genre all, and if you can get them to see where their favorite genre existed in other times and places. So you like the hero's journey, then here's what a sword fight looked like when Errol Flynn did it. It's actually not that different than what when Luke Skywalker did it. Can we get, can we learn to derive some of the same excitement from older places where your brain has to do a little bit of, bit of adjustment? I don't know. That's what helped me a lot. Or that there's um, varying degrees of excellence within that genre. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, everything's doomed. Society is going down a toilet, and but hey, we live in a world of Wickhams and Lydia's. We live in a society. At least yeah. we have Tolstoy in his greatest novel, War and Peace. Right? Yep. No. Wait. <laughs> Tolstoy in his greatest no novel, Anna Karenina. Guys, please don't duel. I think Guys. you might need to shut off the podcast, Nathan. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, boy. You know what? It is close to high noon and came here to talk Austin and to kill a man and fresh out of Austin to talk about. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I guess you're just going to have to kill somebody. Wow. All right. Well, uh, for legal reasons, I'm going to shut off the podcast now, folks, and maybe we'll be back in a second with some some donor shout outs. I hope I and assume with all three of us, I think we'll work this out in an amicable, amicable peaceful manner. Goodbye. Oh, man, folks, we're back. We just took a break. It, I know it sounds like it's all the same thing to you, but actually, there's been a little time in between what you just heard and what you're hearing now. And I do not know how to tell you what happened. It's, I don't know, it's hard to kind of wrap my own head around and it's hard to put into words. Maybe I'll let Brandon, I mean, you are the, I don't know if you'd call yourself the instigator, the instigatee. I don't know. I definitely was the executor, though. You were the executor. Yeah, you you certainly did some execution. Well, we took well, a so here. I, I can yeah. tell the story. What happened is we took a quick break. Mm -hmm. And we were just sitting around as friends, you know, but then we were talking about our true book loves because yes. Valentine's Day just a few, just a couple days ago. Today on the day that this episode's coming out is Valentine's Day. So is it coming out on Monday? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Why not? Oh. Why not? On Valentine's Day. Yeah. So, we were talking about our book lo uh, book loves. Anyways, 
Jake had the nerve to say that he loved Anna Karenina more than War and Peace. And so I thought that that was justifiable cause for a duel. I challenged him. I threw down my glove. I'm always wearing a glove. Right. Yeah, just one. Just one, just in case these things happen. Mm-hmm. And I said, how dare you, sir? And I slapped him across the face with my glove. And I said, pistols at noon. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, being an Indiana boy, Jake doesn't have access to pistols. Those are only something that Texans have. And so at noon, he showed up with nothing and I shot him. Yeah. I mean, it was what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I yeah. You, you are a native Texas boy. May have also been the fact that he was a pastor and said, Brandon, we're friends. Why are you doing this? Right. But we won't add all that. I mean, that's just extraneous detail. <laughs> he said, yeah. think of my kids. He said, this is foolish. It's just a book. Stuff like that. But still, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he liked Anna Karenina. And he yeah. Said, you, watch, watch, your, watch yourself, Nathan. I mean, I got my, got my glove ready. War and Peace is way better than Anna Karenina. That's what I thought. War, Anna Karenina is a piece of tripe. Well, I might be going a little far there, buddy. Utter trash. Yikes. <laughs> Whack. <laughs> I'll see no. you after the podcast is over. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, pour one out on the curb for Jake and sounds like for me. But let's uh, do some donor shout outs. One last donor shout outs, perhaps, before Brandon becomes the sole proprietor. Of this podcast. The, yeah. Maybe me and Jake will be ghosts, so we'll be the sole S-O-U-L proprietors of this podcast. That was everybody's favorite thing, Ghost Brandon. So I think that having <laughs> Ghost Nathan and Ghost Jake for an entire year will be everybody's new favorite thing. Yeah, no, I mean, people love that. I mean, the amount of letters, the support, the money that poured in for that. Listen... Brandon, I, I do. I probably should say if I'm not around next month, it's probably because I am running from the authorities. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, you'll be around next month, though. There's no way that you're not going to be here for your favorite book, Bridge to Terabithia. Oh, yeah. I definitely don't have other plans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The my girl of books. And the little prince. No, we're not doing little prince. I think, well, no, maybe we did. Did we cut that? Nah, I don't remember. Surprise, people. You'll yeah, find out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, listen, we've got donors. They're, they haven't challenged us to any duels. Not yet. The only duel they've challenged is the duel of the how to make this podcast survive. What, what amount of money would they need to give monthly to be able to challenge one of us to a duel? Uh, we're talking pistols, swords. Pistols, yeah. yeah. Oh, pistols. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, are they a good shot? I mean, there are listeners, so probably not. <laughs> well, you never know, Brandon. There might be some, some fellow bunch of nerds. Texans. Yeah, probably a bunch of nerds and ladies and stuff like that. If it's a lady and her delicate feminine fingers can't even pull the trigger, then we'll take her money and shoot her. And that costs, uh, I'm going to say, upwards of 13 bucks a month. There you go. 13 bucks a month, people. And we can take you outside and shoot you. <laughs> we can take you outside and shoot you for just 13 bucks a month. I don't know. I don't know. I'll sword fight somebody for a cool thousand just delivered to my door. Wow. You are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am cheap, aren't I? I'm regretting that already. Because you don't know who's going to show up with us. I mean, it could be like Inigo Montoya or something like that. If, any, <clears throat> if Inigo Montoya shows up to my doorstep with 
a thousand dollars, then oh man, that'd be a really awesome way to go. That would be a good way to go. <clears throat> if, if you, you got do go. have, I don't know if we've ever shared this with the podcast before, but you do have six fingers on each hand. I do have six fingers on each hand, and I did kill a little Spaniard brat's father after he made me an awesome sword. He was kind of asking for it, though. He, he was asking it, for it, yeah. He said that Anna Karenina was worse than War and Peace. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. War and Peace, as we know, total piece of filth. Garbage. Mm. The concepts of war and peace. I don't know. I'm, you know, you, your fate's already sealed, so you say whatever you want, buddy. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's fair. That's fair. Listen, donors. We need, we need to shout out some donors. Sadly, Jake is dead, so he won't be joining us for this. But I am excited about these donors, this donor shout out. Of course, if you want to be a donor of the podcast, uh, a, Patreon, a patron, <laughs> just go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing. If you pay at least 10 bucks, you can get a shout out like what you're about to hear. If you pay 50 bucks, you can get a book in the mail, the very book that we're reading that month. Although I think you're, you're, you have lots of books in advance right now, donors, because we didn't realize we were going to be moving to this new schedule type thing when we sign up the books. Or, or maybe not. I don't know. I'm not actually in the shipping department, although I am married to the shipping department. So, But they don't communicate. Yeah, no, we do not communicate at all. We just watch our separate shows on our separate devices. Thank you very much. Let's shout out some donors here. Let's do it. Why don't I say the name of the donor and then you say how they should spend Valentine's Day. Uh, we've got Robert and Rhonda, the lovebird. At home, around a cozy fire, eating a nice meal prepared by dad. Ah, that's nice. The Artful Anthony Dodger and, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> Artful he's, Anthony lovely, he's got a lovely bride now, right? He's got a lovely bride, Betsy. I don't know if she needs like her own, should she be, you think she's more like a... A scoundrel, like a bootstrap Betsy, or is yeah. she like a Betsy of surpassing beauty, or the artful Anthony Dredger and bootstrap Betty. I like that bootstrap Betsy. They're out, all right, wreaking havoc in the town. Yeah, 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 yeah. They are quite the pair of rapscallions, the artful Anthony Dodger and bootstrap Betsy. All right, a uh, little Anthony cigar store. I didn't say what they should do. Oh, oh right, yeah. What should they do? He should take her out. This is her first Valentine's as a married couple, right? Yeah, I assume so. So, go out on the town, have a wonderful dinner, and then you should uh, recite the Langston Hughes poem, the Harlem Nights one. It's beautiful. Yeah. Great idea. You, you are welcome. Yep. What can he say except you're welcome? What about Little Anthony Cigar Store? What should it do for Valentine's Day? Smoke a couple stogies, man. Of course. The Immortal Chelsea E. Immortal Chelsea E. Hmm. Read some Jane Austen. Yeah, that's always a good thing to do. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Go shoot up the town, of course. Paint the town red. Paint that town red. Love it. A lily of the Valley. A lily of the Valley. Go to an, a winery and sit by the, the side of the lake there and have some cheese and wine. Go to the winery. Enjoy the finery. At the winery. Mm. At the winery. You should be writing jingles. Yes, I should. Enjoy the finery at the winery. And you should be writing the music. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Man. Go west, young man. Go west, young man. Yeah. You should go west. You don't have to go far west. Just no. 
couple steps. Andrew Nestor, the lovebirds. I think I skipped them accidentally. You should take the key that I send you and go to the locker at noon and place all the money there that you've been instructed to do or else. (laughs) Good. Uh, David's Mighty Man Trucking. Oh, man. Go on a road trip. Yeah, obviously. They're Mighty Men and they truck. John and Jill, Little Baby Max. Find a babysitter. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Jane and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis and Cooney Tilly Have Faces. They also need to be sitting around that fire and get themselves a lovely charcuterie board of the nicest cheeses. A lovely charcuterie, not one of those mediocre charcuterie and boards. keep yourself warm by taking all the volumes of Till We Have Faces and feeding the fire with it. Hey, yeah, that sounds great. Well, how many volumes do you suppose Wait, they own? We probably books? don't want to associate ourselves with book burners. Uh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Jay and Katie, don't burn till we have faces. You can cut it into Wink. pieces. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can use it as paper mache. You can fire it into space. There's all kinds of things you do. But yeah, I would not advise trying to burn it in its entirety. You probably want to pull pages out one at a time and burn those because otherwise it won't burn all that well. Right. And I wouldn't advise trying to read it in its entirety. Uh, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth. Uh, she should get a nice call from her son, Nathan. Okay. But, uh, you know, we can roll the dice on that one, see if it happens. Console, uh, Console Prime Adam. Oh, man, you should save the world from that alien attack that's about to happen. Sorry if you had any other plans, but cancel it, Console Prime. That's what you get for being Console Prime. Yeah, I think that's fair. Nathan, not me. Don't do what Nathan's doing, so don't call his mom. Call nope. yours. Nope. Ryan the Red <laughs> Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Take it easy this year. Go to Wendy's. Go to Wendy's. Always good advice. Go to Wendy's. They got the best spicy chicken sandwich. Wendy's actually does have a good spicy chicken sandwich. You know, there's a lot of Popeyes here in Evansville. I never lived in a town with Popeyes oh, before. they have a good chicken sandwich, though. They Popeyes do, is. although I don't know that it quite lived up to the hype when I finally tried it. No. What what Wendy's does is they'll, they'll fancy it up, but mm-hmm. it's still a good chicken sandwich. Yeah. And I probably would say better than Chick-fil-A, even though that might get me murdered by some you know what might listeners. get me murdered i think you know who i think has one of the better chicken sandwiches i hate to say it but mcdonald's mcdonald's when, does the mcchicken they, is pretty good when they entered the popeyes race it was you want to know who's better than people give them credit for who's that mcdonald's just in general hot take yeah yeah i mean people love to hate on them but man people are people are jealous it's funny that we're the ones saying this <laughs> How many, how many have you served people? McDonald's has served like a billion or something like that. Yeah. Number of customers served by you, zero. Half of those servings were between me and Nathan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've each eaten half a billion times at McDonald's. <laughs> Whoa. Quarter billion. Quarter billion. Yeah, yeah. You're let's right. be modest. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's be modest. People were tempted to really flatter us there, but we're being modest. Did I say DJ Sammy G? <laughs> Oh, they should go to the discotheque. <laughs> oh, yeah. And do please pronounce the whole thing. Don't shorten it to disco. No. Benny and Dana Tiberius? <sighs> Take a trip to Rome. Take a trip to it Rome. Is, it's, now's the time. Now, should they do as the Romans do? When in Rome. When in Rome. Okay, but like on the airplane, no. No. No, no, no. But as soon no. as you cross that airspace into Rome, you better. Yeah, do as the Romans do. Uh, Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks? From Yon Window Breaks. They should go to one of those nice tower restaurants that have windows all around it and that spin. Mm-hmm. What if Yon Windows break? I guess hold on for dear life because you're pretty high up and I bet there's a lot of air suction. Yeah. <laughs> that would stink to get sucked out of a... Did you ever hear the uh, Superman joke? 
Super- I don't know. There are two guys at a bar. I just kind of spoiled it by saying it's a Superman joke, but whatever. Two guys at a bar. They're both drinking, and then the one looks at the other and says, hey, man, do you know that if you jump out the window over there, so they're at the, this nice bar at the top of this high-rise building. Mm-hmm. He says, if you jump out the window over there, the air currents will catch you and you'll float. And the guy says, no, I don't believe it. And he says, if I'm right, you got to buy me a drink. And so the guy says, okay, sure, because they're already pretty drunk, and he doesn't even think the other guy would have the nerve to do it. Well, lo and behold, he gets up, he goes, he jumps out the window, and there he is, he's floating. And the air currents have caught him, and so he pulls himself back, and he says, okay, you owe me a drink now. And the guy buys him the drink, he says, you know what, I'm going to try it too. And then he takes off running, jumps out the window, and he falls, and he falls, and he falls. And then the bartender turns, and he says, you know what, Superman, you're a real jerk when you're drunk. Oh, it was Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that great? (laughs) That was great. Have you ever had someone set you up for a joke, like your significant other or a friend or somebody is like, tell that joke, but they include the punchline, like, tell that to get to the other side joke, you know, the one about the chicken and why it crosses the road. And then you're, or or even an anecdote, like, tell the one about that, that ends with you sitting in a pile of donkey uh, stuff. And you're like, and that's the, and that was ruins the joke, just like I did. Yeah. Did you ever think that maybe we've all been misunderstanding the chicken joke, and it's actually extraordinarily dark by what it means by the other side, because the chicken gets run over, and therefore it goes to the other side. Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? That's interesting. Mind blown. My mind is blown. (laughs) (laughs) My mind is blown. It is interesting to me. I do think about this joke a lot. The most famous joke is a meta anti joke, like with a with a non punchline. Like it's yeah. funny because it's not funny. It's funny to me that the most famous joke would have would contain those qualities, but maybe it also contains the qualities of dark existential angst that you just brought to it. So you can always count on me to bring the dark existential angst. Yep, Mister, you're wearing a black T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. It's dark green, actually, but... Who's counting? The dark green existential angst. Who... Where were we? Do we just did uh, Professor... Uh, Eric and Catherine Brown, you know, window breaks, which le- brings us to Professor and Lady X? Uh, they should go listen to a nice scholarly exposition of something. I'm sure you can find one on Valentine's Day. Yeah? I mean, any episode of The Bookening, basically, is that. That's true. Just listen to The Bookening. Yeah. I mean, they basically got done listening to a nice scholarly exposition, so... Uh, what about Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan? You should buy some uh, flowers for your beloved. You should buy some flowers for your beloved. What about Noah Constrictor? Go to the zoo, to the reptile house. Go to the zoo, to the reptile house. Do it. Make sure you don't carry a mouse. Otherwise, the reptiles will go for you, because that's what a reptile do they will get that mouse in your pocket then they'll grab your little heart locket and pull it till you strangle and turn blue that's what reptiles do to you wicka 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 uh waka waka (laughs) is fozzy bear the greatest rap artist i think so would you consider him to be black or white move on (laughs) Uh, Marichip. Oh, she should go to the reptile house of the mouse. <laughs> yeah, the, the reptile house of the mouse. Uh, the fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. She should make sure that her beloved gives her flowers. I mean, she's already fair and fragrant, so... 
Yeah. She should get some more fairness and fragrance. Light a bunch of candles that are nice and fragrant. Live up to your name. That's what I'm saying. I mean, maybe she doesn't have to do any of that because she's already fair and fragrant, so she can be surrounded by garbage and still be fair and fragrant. It's like those... You ever have those uh, trash bags that are scented? Yeah, it's weird. Those... That's like a... That's... Speak of existential crises. That... Every time I smell a trash bag like that, it just makes me depressed. (laughs) Right. Well, we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't tell the listeners you spend upwards of an hour and a half a day just smelling scented trash bags. Full of trash. Full of trash. Yeah, it is part of my job. And saying, this is, this is the world we live in. Anna, won't you listen to me? It is kind of a sad situation, but it makes me who I am. It does make you who you are. It does make you who you are. And that's and we and we love who you are. Hey, you know who else we love is Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese and brick red. What? <laughs> I don't know why that's in there. I guess he hates brick red too. Well, buy your beloved a brick red box of chocolates, like you would get from the Russell Stover's department. Hey, nice. Jujitsu Jeffrey. The get Tex- over it. Yeah, get over it, Anthony. Jujitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Oh, this is easy. Watch some Walker Texas Ranger, buddy. Hmm. Is there anything better Netflix you can do on Valentine's Day? and Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to move on. Midnight Ninja Ellen? Midnight Ninja Ellen. Oh, go and do some jujitsu. We already had jujitsu, right? Yeah. Oh, who cares? Go out and do some with your beloved and, like, you know, save some people. There's yeah. lots of people that always need to be saved. There's lots of people walking through alleyways right now being accosted by ruffians. And you can do something about that, Midnight Angel, and we believe in you, M-N-E. Return of the Jedediah. Return of the Jedediah. I don't know. There's no easy reference there to tell them to watch something. So, um, go take a midnight walk. Yeah. Under the stars. Why not? Or watch Star Wars. I don't care. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Um, (laughs) Read some poetry together. Yeah. Or by yourself if you have no one to read it with. I don't know. Yeah. Can't add anything to that. I mean, that's just what he should do. What about Timothy the Rider at dawn? <sighs> oh, wake up early in the morning and go for a nice horseback ride. At dawn. At dawn. That's kind of your thing. Uh, do, do, do. What about Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm and love bees? Oh, man. You should go camping in a honeybee farm. Yes. It won't be very warm, though, so you might want to take a heater. I mean, you could go camping in a honeybee form. Unless the bees sting you and you're allergic, then I do think that leads to allergic reactions that would warm your body. Yeah. So, always good advice. Yeah, yeah. I I, I really don't have anything to add on that one. Maddie, Maddie, Matt Man? Maddie, Maddie, Matt Man. You should also go join those others who are doing some crime fighting because you are the hero that Gotham deserves. He is the hero that Gotham deserves. It's true. Uh, Sweet Jamie Sunshine? Sweet Jamie Sunshine. You know what? You should wake up early, enjoy a nice cup of coffee as the sun comes rising up over the hillside in the warm morning light in your window. It's lovely in the morning like that, you know? Mm-hmm. What about Cold Steel Cody? You should definitely kill someone with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all going to do that this Valentine's yeah. Day, but Brandon already did it to Jake, sadly. Yeah. Oh, what about, this is an interesting one, Jacqueline the Librarian Barbarian. You should uh, go into the library and read your favorite book dressed as Xena the Warrior Princess. Mm Mm-hmm. And then books won't be the only thing people are checking out. Whoa, that might lead to a Valentine's Day date unless you're married, and then it'll lead to your husband 
wanting to take you on a Valentine's Day date. I don't know. Or, or, I think we should just, move on. Just maybe just saying, honey, please don't go to the library dressed as Xena the Warrior Princess. That's true. I have a story about Xena the Warrior Princess that I can't tell on this podcast, but mm, if, if that's you ever, for the After a, Dark episodes that'll it, be coming it, out occasionally. It would, it would be the After Dark, although it doesn't involve anything that I did, just something that I... <sighs> should we drop some After Dark episodes on our Patreon page? <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably that's a great idea. Yeah, and I was not a bad boy in this story. It's just somebody else was. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Neil, his mate. You guys should go traipsing through the forest, singing that weird Goldberry song from Lord of the Rings. You know, I think they should traipse through the city. No one ever traipses through the city. They just traipse fine traipse through, through the city. Yeah, singing that Goldberry song. It'll be that much more interesting for everyone who sees you doing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, Brandon was really offended that I took it upon myself to improve it. It's actually you improved it, and especially uh, too bad it's not fall because then you could do it through those beautiful yellow trees that you know how the leaves turn yellow on campus Mm -hmm. but instead you're going to just have to do it through the cold deadness of campus right now but hey go up kirkwood and everybody will be weirded out by you go up kirkwood because everybody's eating outside right now and those weird geodesic dome things with heaters inside them because we all are isolated from everyone else Uh, well the important thing is we're stopping the covid stop the vid stop the vid Saxophone Alex. I think you know what you should do. You should play the piano for your girl. Yeah, play the piano for your girl. Because oh. nobody wants to hear saxophone. Nope. <laughs> well, yeah. Saxophones <laughs> and Valentine's Day. Never go together. Do, do not go together. Saxophones and love. Don't know why you'd put those together. What about the other saxophone Alex and dubstep Danny? Well, he should definitely play the saxophone for his lady. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. What about Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are no longer stuck in the cold, but please do send cheese? Uh, huh. You should take a trip to San Antonio and have a meal on the Riverwalk, because it's a really lovely city. Yeah. Just don't terrorize Texas, please. Yeah, why not? Why not? What about Ben Solo? Speaking of the Terror of Texas, what about Ben Solo and Kylo Ren? Oh, boy. Again, no easy references to a movie that you should watch, so... You guys should... Wake up at midnight, you, yeah. midnight on the day of Valentine's Day. So it's probably way too late to actually do this, but I don't care. Find a time machine mm-hmm. and start reading War and Peace and don't stop for 24 hours. Or until you die. Or until you die. Because you're not allowed to eat anything until you finish. Or stop talking, take a breath, anything. You just got to read. Just, just so, read. So you'll probably last, you know, first 10 minutes and you'll pass out. Yeah. But what better way to spend Valentine's Day? What better way to spend 10 minutes before you die? John, the Cosmic King of Chaos? Oh, you should definitely find the Infinity Stones, buddy, and live up to your name. Yeah, John. Live up to your name. Your woman will be very impressed by all the power. Yeah. Well, you know, Mrs. John, the Cosmic King of Chaos, she is obsessed with power. Yeah. What about Matthew, the Mind Flayer? Uh, very dark uh, patron, Matthew. The yeah, find a way to make it into the upside down and have a nice meal over yeah. there. Flay the I'm minds sure. of some of those demigorgs or whatever they yeah. are. Uh, what about any are you okay? Get your gun. Any are you okay? Get your gun. Go to the rodeo if you yeah. can find one this time of year. Why not? Uh, what about flight of the Valerie? Go to the symphony. Yeah, Thor Ragnajosh. Thor Ragnajosh, uh, find some gladiatorial battle to join in. Yeah. 
Find a funny rock monster sidekick if you can. He's my favorite. Yeah, that guy's pretty funny. Uh, what about Steven dot dot dot? Get yourself lost and send out a signal of both for both rescue and love using Morris code. Morse code. Morris code. Morris. Yeah, no. Morris. Use, use Morris code. Use Morris's code. Yeah. Our good friend, Morris. I hear his code is best on. I had an old man I used to work with in Illinois named Morris. It was yeah. Roger and Morris, and we would have to do projects with them. Not have to. They were great. But every he talked like this. And he'd, every day when we would get to lunchtime, he'd say, you guys want to go to that pizza man? Because <laughs> there was this restaurant in town called the Pizza Man. That's where he always wanted to go. There so you go. Anyways. That's, that's pretty cool. Sounds like a great guy. Is it Tuesdays with Morris? Is that the book? Tuesdays with Maury. Maury. Oh, okay. Did you ever have Tuesdays with Morris? Yeah. Go to the Pizza Man? I would go to that Pizza Man. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, where were we? Who did we just say? Steven dot dot dot. So, Peglodon. Peglodon. You definitely should find a time machine and go back and have Valentine's Day with the dinosaurs. Speaking of time machines... What? He's here. He's oh Brandon, you Brandon better you are scared now, I bet. I am terrified. So Jake, how does you should it feel be. to be yeah. Well so Jake, you'll remember, because you were there for it, so I don't even really know why I'm telling you that mm-hmm. Brandon killed you in a duel after you said Anna Karenina was better than War and Peace, which is why you haven't been joining us mm-hmm. for this patron shout out segment. It, Brandon tends to have these flights of fancy um oh i forgot about those oh yeah. wait am i a- the idea that brandon could ever kill me in a duel um, well, it was with pistols and he's from texas and you're from indiana and you guys aren't allowed to have pistols i bet you i could beat him in a marksmanship contest wow Shots wow fired. sounds like we need to have a, a little competition here yeah i mean the only way that brandon's gonna get the best of me is if he gets me in the back mm. yeah maybe so I'm Brandon, actually a you were, good you shot. lied to me you guys about killing do this? Jake. <laughs> what? I was okay with you killing Jake, but the fact that you lied to me about killing Jake is really cheesing me off, buddy. <laughs> the fact that I'm in this straight jacket probably should have taken off anything. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was maybe like something the kids were doing. You're always so fashionable. Yeah, it's fashionable. <laughs> you got the apple bottom jeans. Yep. What else? You know, all the things the kids do and talk about. Um, <laughs> okay. Remember, remember that awesome song. Uh, well, hey, he can help us finish off some of these Valentine's Day right. things. Right. We, we don't mean in a duel. We just mean giving them fun names. Oh, we so, might challenge them to a duel. I don't know. Well, uh, Jake, we're just telling these people what they should do for Valentine's Day. What do you think Christopher the Flower Hulk should do for Valentine's Day? Probably buy some chocolates. Yeah. Just eat them alone in his apartment. Yeah. Hulk Surrounded by his flowers. Yeah, his flowers. Protein-based chocolate so you can help Hulk bulk up some yeah. of that. So that's up. what the Hulk needs is to bulk up. Yeah. He's got to yeah. maintain that Hulky shape. He's got to maintain that Hulky shape. <laughs> uh, what about, speaking of uh, people without Hulky shapes, Yeah, Lady, Lady of the Crystal Lake. You should definitely give a sword to a king. Yeah. That's a good thing to do for a Valentine's Day. Go to the White House and try to give a sword to Joe Biden. I wish you could give one to Stephen King. As far as I'm, I'm trying to think That's what true. Other, who other American kings there are. Martin Luther King Jr. You he could, did. Uh, well, you go could, lay one across his grave, I guess. Yeah, that would go well for you, I'm sure. That's probably the safest option. <laughs> that is the safest option. <laughs> give a sword from a lake to Martin King Jr. Luther's uh, grave. 
that guy. Ian the Dathomirian, Lord of Death. Ooh. Well, yeah. I mean, you could go to a coven of Dathomirian witches and... Wow. <laughs> see what I happens. Gonna, <laughs> I was going to say reenact number. the last scene of <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Drink poison? Is that what you're yeah. telling him to do? <laughs> well, one of them drinks poison, and the other kisses their lips and dies. You know what? Just get some sweeties, man. Oh, you, you gotta don't stab have to go yourself, to a is. death cult of witches or <clears throat> drink poison. Jake and Brandon are mean. I, uh, you know, he's from Dathomir, so that's what... Yeah, that's fair. I, that's like... You could be if, like... If, uh, he's a, if he is a Dathomirian lord of death... You could be like a Mary got, Shelley and Pierce Night Sisters. Go make out in a cemetery. Don't make out in a cemetery. Here's what you do. You get one of those witches, you ask her out on a date, get her to marry you, and then you uh, like uh, do kind of a taming of the witch kind of thing until she's not so witchy, and then you have a nice life together, assuming you're not already married. I don't remember what your real name or deal is at the, off the top of my head. <laughs> Ian the Death of Miriam, Lord of Death. If you're already married, then don't marry another witch. Yeah. You guys could get matching. <laughs> the witch you have is fine. The witch you have is fine. My aunt and uncle used to have these shirts. It was, he had, that's not a witch, that's my wife. Mm -hmm. And then she had, I'm not a witch, I'm his wife. Get those t-shirts. Yeah. That's a reference to a book. Yeah, a, and a movie that we just re re reviewed on Sanity at the Movies. It's what a about? movie? What? Yeah. We don't talk what? about movies on this podcast. We don't talk about movies. Oh, yeah, that's, it's. No, it, no. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Do not. We don't talk <laughs> about movies. Stop, movies. No, no, no. I'm going to shoot you guys through this screen. Not a big oh, no. fan That of song the... is not even allowed in my house. And Canto soundtrack. But you are super racist against uh, uh, Colombians or whatever. Too bad you can't aim with that gun. Yeah. Too bad you can't aim with that All gun. All right. Well, we're going to have this one out, Brandon. <laughs> uh, this will be fun. I'm, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad somebody else uh, enjoyed the Uncanto soundtrack as much as I did. Oh, Emily H. Dude, this... How do you even know the Encanto? Have you seen Encanto? Yeah, it's horrible. It's it's a stupid story. It's a stupid movie that I've not seen because <laughs> I know it's stupid. And so we've not seen it. And my kids try to play that soundtrack around the house. Like, yeah, what the well, heck is wrong with you people? You know, it's his best soundtrack, I'd say, since Hamilton. So who cares? It's a good soundtrack. What's that saying? Hamilton was great. So what? So it's a good soundtrack. I mean, I, I, I do legitimately... I, I I would be telling tales out of school if I did not say I have said Alexa play the Encanto soundtrack and I'm sorry listeners if your Alexas are firing up and playing the Encanto soundtrack. Sake not sorry. It's a good soundtrack. So bad. We don't talk about the Encanto soundtrack. What about Emily Nightshade, the Haunter of Dreams? Ooh, you should haunt some dude's dreams. Your husband, if you're married. Yes. What about all about the Benjamin? But if you're all about the Benjamins, then you don't have any problems. Got 99, but... That ain't one true. of them. That ain't one. You should take your woman out somewhere where you can spend some of those Benjamins that you're all about. Yeah. I think Go make right. it rain somewhere. Let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. What about the mysterious Phantom? Oh, you should die. <laughs> I think that Bradley would like a call mm, from the mysterious sure. Phantom. This Valentine's Day. Find find my number. <laughs> uh, Up your donor to two fifty a month, and we'll give you my number. What about Jeremy, the dark hooded Lord of Death, and his brooding bride, Maya? Maya. What should he do? 
I was going to say make another baby, but then Nathan was going to have to cut it again. So. Well, I mean, she hasn't had the one yet. Yeah, it's not yeah. possible. Oh. I mean, they could make they it in a lab. They could steal an embryo. They could, yeah. Like a monster baby? Make like a, monster a monster baby? Like a monster baby. There you go. Make a monster baby. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Make a monster baby. In a lab. In a lab. Hey, what about <laughs> Remains of the J? Remains of the J? Mm-hmm. I don't remember Remains of the J. That's new. I think he was introduced when you were here. I don't know. I don't know if we were thinking about calling him. I don't know if we'd landed on that as the final thing. I think we, I think we must not of, have. I think we said like J of the Locust. Actually, J of the Locust is kind of cool. We, we said all the re- sort of J related puns. Remains of the J. I read some Ishiguro. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she should do. What about, so we introduced, so this is fun. I actually had two separate people write in and give suggestions for what this patron's donor shout out should be. And I have to pull up one of them because I've forgotten it. But we could not for the life of us come up with a a donor shout out for this, this couple last time. And we came up with something really lame. And then I got an email. And I also got like a message thingy that I have to pull up. I know I'm just repeating myself. Somebody say something while I pull this up. Somebody vamp or something. Hey, Nathan, pull that up. Yeah. Hurry up, Nathan. Pulling that up, we're going to vamp. Okay. Hurry up, Nathan. Oh, man, I can't believe this. This donor shout out's like a quarter of the podcast. It's amazing. Uh, It's everybody's favorite part anyways. It's the only thing people listen to. (laughs) Yeah, people just skip to the donor shout outs. They're always saying, why can't the donor shout outs be longer? Remember when they used to be at the beginning of the podcast? everybody was yeah. so mad because we'd always do like five minutes or 10 minutes of wonderful banter and then we'd have the donor shout outs and it'd be like a good solid 20 minutes before we mentioned the name of the book and people i i forgot yeah we finally moved them to the you know every time you say the word vamp i think of the song pour some sugar on me pour some sugar on me baby no not that yeah no i oh wait here we go i found it i found it there it is Yep, 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 yep. Okay. All right, guys. We have two separate ones submitted by patrons for this patron. So we had Abram and Sarah. They were the patrons. Mm -hmm. And what we came up with, with our genius, was, because we know Abram's a dentist, Abram the puller of teeth and Sarah the teether of pull. Ooh. So that's the the workshopped Nathan, Jake, and Brandon (laughs) thing. Mm. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brilliant. Great. Probably better than these things that our lovely other patrons sent in. Well, so. we are the professional podcasters, and they're not. So I would yeah. imagine they can't do any better. But let's no, see. I mean, how could anybody do better <laughs> than Abram the Polar of Teeth and Sarah the Teeth of Pole? So I, I had somebody suggest sweet. And I'm sorry, I don't have the names of the people that suggested this. I think Peter Ricketts suggested the second one, but I don't have them right in front of me. So I'm sorry, but you deserve great credit. So sweet home. Abrahama, Sarah's coming home to you. That's okay. one of the choices that we have. Pretty great choice. And I've got K Sarah Sarah. What Abram will be will be. That's another choice. We win. You I want Abram do. Abram the puller of teeth and Sarah the teether of pole yeah. over sweet home Abrahama. Sarah's and it's got that bookening je ne sais quoi to it. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> K Sarah Sarah. I kind of like. I mean, I kind of like both of these. All right. Well, Nathan, what do you want to do? Listeners, I want our listeners to weigh in. Do you like Abram, the puller of teeth, and Sarah, the teether of pull? 
created by genius podcasters us or do you like sweet home abrahama sarah's coming home to you that is a little out of character for us i somehow i feel k sarah sarah what abram will be will be a nice reference to doris day there doris doris uh, day remains of the day listener you decide all right I think remains of the Doris Day would be like the Jeopardy category. (laughs) Remains of the Doris Day. Yeah, whatever that Jeopardy category is from our our cut episode that you can listen to on patreon.com forward slash the booking. You can also get a donor shout out. All right. We're, it looks like maybe Brandon's dead. No, I'm here. No, he's here. Okay. We're leaving though. Goodbye, folks. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) It's a commercialized holiday. Do with it what you will. Well, I, I'll tell you what I'll, I do. I want to give a special Valentine's Day to all the ladies out there. <laughs> Remember when I used to talk like this on the booking? Yeah, one you a woman. Yeah. Hello, ladies. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, bye. <laughs>